Tune in to the Neil Prendeville Show weekdays from 9 a.m. on Cork's Red FM. Good morning all. Uh, Ukraine and Putin is front and centre again uh, this morning as if it's ever gone away, not for many weeks now. But uh, the withdrawal from certainly areas around Kiev um, means that uh, some of the sites that people are witnessing are just absolutely horrific. Uh, the slaughter of civilians. It's a feature on the front of the Independent today. I don't mean to overly upset you at this hour of the morning, but the Allies, the Western Allies, say they won't rest now till Putin is held accountable for war crimes. Yesterday, there was the discovery of hundreds of dead civilians on the outskirts of Kiev, mass graves with limbs and heads sticking out of the ground, uncovered after the Russian soldiers were withdrawing. Uh, and of course, uh, it was like a scorched earth policy as they were leaving. I see photographs in the papers today of dead bodies uh, with um, uh, hoods on their heads and their hands tied behind their backs. So clearly uh, executed, burned bodies, signs of torture, the horrific fate of trapped civilians, uh, all part of, and I called it genocide in the past, and I know that one or two people felt that it was a bit over the top, but it's making the headlines now where they call it Russian genocide. Civilians shot in the streets. Regardless of the papers you pick up this morning, you will unfortunately see the photographs, and I'm not just talking about one or two. It's like one body followed by another, followed by another, followed by another um, on city and suburban streets. It's just hard to even take it in, uh, the scale of it. Uh, It's the front of many of the newspapers today. Um, uh, Great, great walks and climbs uh, for Charlie Bird at the weekend. And the coverage in the papers is just fantastic. Uh, For motor neurons now, he has raised over 2 million euro now at this stage. And many of the papers... Uh, right across the morning and indeed over the weekend had many photographs of people uh, climbing the summit of their own, you know, their own achievements, if you like. Uh, and uh, Charlie says he shed a tears of joy at the response to his Climb with Charlie campaign. Um, they'll go over two million of that you can be sure of. Uh, of course, all this came from his own diagnosis with motor neuron disease. And it it really did touch the heart of everybody across the country. And he not a bother on him, the wide earthly world, because he's very fit in that regard. Up to the top of Croke Park, Patrick, he went with many, many thousands and people walked all over Ireland. Hang on a second. They walked all over the world. What am I talking about? Uh, all over the US, Australia, South Africa and Spain. And I'm reading from this morning's mirror. Sadly, though, there was a, a very sad tragedy. And that was the loss of a wonderful woman, Cora O'Grady from uh, Mitchellstown, who took on Galtimore in Tipperary and climbed it apparently with uh, some members of her family. And she passed away as she took ill on the Galtimore uh, and died. Cora O'Grady was one of a group climbing the mountain in support of of Charlie. Uh, she's from Robert Street in Mitchellstown. She was climbing with her children, Luke uh, and uh, Lily. Took ill. Uh, she's only 51 years old. She was near the summit, apparently. Uh, when she collapsed, the alarm was raised. The Air Corps got to her. She was treated by paramedics but failed to regain consciousness. And that is so, so sad. And there's some lovely tributes from family members making the papers today and also online. And our thoughts or with all of the families, uh, um, of all of the, her family and all of her friends uh, and all of the good people of Mitchellstown. You know, you talk about paramedics and air ambulance. The front of the echo today has what can only be described as a, a whistleblower. And these are important stories when people come forward anonymously um, and, and say exactly how bad the state of our health service is. This is to do with the fact that a Cork paramedic has said that I think the number he, he or she mentioned was 12, uh, more than a dozen colleagues 
had left the ambulance service this year due to low morale. And it's only going to get worse. It's headlining there because there's paramedic shortage. But um, that doesn't do justice to exactly what he was saying. Morale amongst his colleagues is at an all-time low and several have left the service since the start of the year. You could say that about many people leaving their profession or their chosen career path, um, you know, during COVID or after COVID, because that has happened a lot. A lot of people have made life changes and career changes. But that's not the kind of thing you want to hear uh, with regards to people leaving a service that is so important. Actually, it's life-saving. Irish Times then talks, and this might have sat better on Friday, uh, being April Fool's Day. Uh, But apparently, Eamon Ryan now is suggesting that people should take shorter showers. Front page of the Indo today. Take shorter showers and cut out one car journey a week to bring down your energy costs. Near a mention of how the government or the state might happen, help in any way, shape or form uh, with regards to VAT or standing charges or, you know, actually paying the money they said they were going to pay out as an energy credit. Remember that 200 euro? He's also saying things like, don't fill the kettle to the top. Uh, turn down the thermostat by one degree. Figure he stopped short of saying, go to bed early or just wear more jumpers. Uh, but I mean, there is a little bit of logic with regards to the kittle. I don't know if you know it, but it's the, it's the kittle and the toaster that burns huge amounts of energy in a short period of time. Just think of what a kettle has to do. It's got to get the temperature right up there ASAP. So, um, for those in, in you know, nothing else, he gives us a nice interesting tip. I got a tip this morning. You know the pull-off calendars that you get? You know, I have one every day and it's got a, it tells you a, an historical note and it gives you a quirky fact. I can't remember what the historical note is for today, the fourth day of April. But the actual quirky fact is that Viagra helps keep your flowers standing straight for a week longer. So if you learn nothing so if you learn nothing else today, you learn that's assuming that's assuming you've got some Viagra knocking around the house that you're not using. I suppose you might maybe crush it up and just kinda sprinkle it into the flowers, but apparently they'll stay <laughs> They'll stay standing for a week longer. Um, Anyway, and back to serious stories. Um, You know, you look at energy costs and fuel costs and all sorts of other things that have just gone through the roof. Inflation's gone mad. Uh, And that, of course, has a huge impact on even even what you buy in supermarkets. That's probably why uh, Vincent de Paul are saying that um, they have uh, seen an increase in the amount of people they're helping with fuel costs 500% up in the month of February when you compare it to last year, 500% up. And they break it down in the mail today where they're saying that, really, to be quite honest, if you were to put a figure on it to each average household as to, you know, how worse off you are, it's €3,000. So you really need to earn anywhere between five and €6,000 to be €3,000 net worse off, if you follow me. So you've had Electric Ireland, you've had SSE, Airtricity jumping on the bandwagon with a 24 and 23% increases in gas and electric. There are now homes where the choice has been made between eating and heating. And the mail this morning breaks it down into different sections. They say, um, increased cost per year as per an Irish Daily Mirror survey, just under a thousand on electricity and gas bills, uh, 75 increase in the standing charge, which goes straight to the government. Um, that's for electricity, 150 on the gas standing charges. So that's 225 that goes straight to the, to the government. A thousand euro increase in petrol. These are just the increases now. This isn't what it costs you a year. These are increases in costs. A thousand on petrol and diesel. Uh, Nearly, nearly a thousand 
increase in grocery bills and uh, home heating oil at least 400 euro increase that is so your increase is 3,305. And you know the robot trees that we've got on Patrick Street in the Grand Parade? Just to remind you, they cost €350,000 to put there. A very expensive seat for a coffee or a sandwich because what they actually do is negligible. They're actually complete and utter waste of time. Uh, but now they're going to start measuring measuring NOx. Now, NOx is the... To be quite honest with you, NOx is the stuff that comes out of the um, uh, exhausts of your cars, petrol and diesel cars. So they're putting NOx monitors now in areas like Oliver Plunkett Street, Grand Parade, Patrick Street and the South Mall in June. And everybody's very excited about it, and you should be too. The rebirth of a nation, well, of course, uh, we had the census last night. More on that a a little later this morning. But they're also saying that there's statistics out now to show that the COVID pandemic triggered a baby boom. Well, you can kind of understand why with so much extra time on people's hands. So baby boom because of COVID. And all of the red tops are always completely and utterly infatuated by the cost of televisions in prisons. I have no idea why. You take away somebody's liberty, would you please let them watch a bit of television? I mean, you know, they can't walk out their own front door. And that, to me, is price enough. But they tell us this morning that it's costing €320,000 to provide television sets. This isn't the cost of Sky now or Netflix or anything like that, but maybe they're preloaded on the TVs. 320000 on providing Irish lags with television sets and access to multi-channel services, including Sky Sports and Netflix. So it begs the question, do you think that there should be television in prison? Do you think that um, prisoners should have access to Sky Sports and Netflix and multi-channel land? Text 0868104106. If so, why so? If not, why not? Text 0868104106. And I love this guy. And you know, we can't claim him because he's above in County Galway, I believe. But he's a huge Supermax fan. So he went on Saturday, decided at the crack of dawn that he would go out and do a review of Supermax cheeseburgers. Now, I know, I know we were talking about chip che- chip che- chips, cheese and curry uh, last Friday. But this guy apparently rates the Supermax cheeseburger above all others. So he travelled all the way uh, from Galway to eight different Supermax plazas, by all accounts, and even went to Mallow. Unfortunately, his reports on the Supermax in Mallow wasn't great, but eight different ones in a day. Um, and it's uh, his complete rating of the Supermax cheeseburger makes this morning star. Apparently, um, the one in his hometown is the best, but he would say that. And one way to stave off dementia, take up a musical instrument, and one certain one that will definitely work, or at least the headline in the mail says this morning, how piano lessons at 60 can stave off dementia. So if you're doing piano lessons and you're doing Sudoku and you're doing crosswords and reading books, you'll live forever. You're listening to the number one talk show in court, The Neil Prendeville Show. It's the best in Cork. On Red FM. And you can text 0868104106, pick up the phone on 0818104106, and away we go. And as always, if you wish, you can email neil at uh, redfm.ie. Merchants Key in the city has been closed after an incident involving a single vehicle, which has seen one person uh, taken to hospital. There's no access to Merchants Key from Parnell Place or Patrick Street right now. And so, therefore, any of you that were thinking of approaching that area are being urged to avoid it for now. I hope everybody's okay. Somebody's been taken to hospital for Merchants Key right now, or at least now that I'm getting the information. So I'm assuming it's still current. Uh, Merchants Key in the city closed for now after an incident involving a single vehicle. One person 
taken to hospital. Back after the break, calls, texts and emails on the way. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. And while we're talking a little later on, I'll be coming back to this. Um, there's a report out from Tripe and Rasheen, the uh, online news service that says here on Side, right now as I speak, or at least when they printed and wrote this article, there were 1,089 short-term lettings in Cork City and County on Airbnb. 1,089 short-term lettings in Cork City and County on Airbnb. That's worth repeating because there are 62 long-term homes to rent on daft. I mean, is that daft or what? So 1,089 on Airbnb, 62 homes to rent, I suppose a combination of homes and apartments to rent on daft. Something has gone badly wrong. Text on that if you're uh, interested or indeed if you're searching for a property. That's probably one of the reasons why you can't find one. Landlords have migrated to Airbnb. Text 0868104106. Janice, good morning. Good morning, how are you? I'm well. How's your dad, Joe? I mean, you sent me what I have to say is a very alarming uh, email. What happened? Um, Dad went into hospital four weeks ago for what we were told was a routine heart operation and we'd have him back within three to four days. Walked in the front door kind of thing. Yeah. Walked walked in all, all, all a bit slowly but walked in the front door of sound body and mind and the dad that we have now is a shadow form of the man who walked into the hospital and we have no answers, we have no communication, we have no updates, nobody's contacting us, we have tried absolutely everything we can. Are there COVID restrictions and things like that in the mercy at the moment? There are the COVID restrictions when he was in a ward and we were able to nominate one person to be with him for half an hour every night. it was it was completely dependent, and, and this is nothing. Um, the nurses and doctors there are doing a demonstrous job, and the Mercy Hospital is fantastic. But it, it was completely dependent on the night that we went in, whether we were allowed in or not, even okay. though we had somebody nominated. Okay. So it was, you can imagine that was extremely frustrating. And, I, and I'll come back to that section of our conversation. I was uh, mm-hmm. maybe maybe I jumped ahead, but five weeks ago he walked in, admittedly slowly, into the Mercy for uh, yeah. what you were told was a routine operation. Be home in three or four mm-hmm. days. Now he's yeah. presenting like a stroke victim, unable to walk, mm-hmm. unable to articulate words and sentences, and unable to recognise us as a family at times. I mean, that's yeah, exactly that's alarming. It's it's extremely difficult for us, and I suppose at this stage. You know, we just want answers as to what happened in that operation, what happened after the operation, what happened in the meantime, you know, when we weren't allowed to see him. Something happened, and, and that's my opinion and my feeling, but something happened to Dad in that operation or after that operation that we just want answers to because the man that they're giving us back is, is not the man that we gave them. Did you, did you, okay, so he went in, you know, got prepped, did all of the pre-surgery things, mm-hmm. had the heart operation, uh, mm-hmm. went through recovery, and did you meet with them then, visit with them, sit with them then? We sat with him about two days after the heart operation, again with COVID restrictions, we had to jump through some hoops to get one or two people in, and we did, thankfully, and we sat with them, and, and my immediate reaction when I saw him first was, He's had a stroke. He looks like he had a stroke. Um, we were kind of, you know, rest assured, listen, this is how people present after a serious operation like this. You know, you need to give it a couple of days. And we did give it a couple of days. And Dad has just got progressively worse, progressively worse. Okay. Um, 
What's the next stage after surgery like that? Does one remain in the hospital? Do do, do you or do you get moved to to, to rehab? Or? She would remain. Yeah, they they moved him to rehab. Um, and again, in my opinion and my feeling is they moved him to rehab way too soon. Um, he went up to rehab twice and was rushed back by ambulance twice to A and E in the Mercy. And um, the first time was distressing, but the second time, which is why I reached out, was the most distressing because Dad was on a trolley in A&E for, you know, three days and three nights. He was extremely agitated. He didn't know who we were. Okay, so just on he, that point, that, that was after he was rushed back from rehab. To, is yeah, that to exactly. go back into the Mercy system, he has to wait in A&E? Exactly. Okay, exactly. yeah, and okay. My feeling is they sent him to rehab, so when he was sent back, should he not have been given the care that maybe he should have been given before he was sent to rehab? Okay. To, to put the man in A&E was just beyond a And he remained on a trolley from the Thursday Mm -hmm. the 31st of March to Sunday the 3rd. 3rd of April, exactly. Good Um, God. Dad came out of the bed on Friday morning. Dad didn't fall out of the bed because there was bars up on the bed, but Dad was so distressed that he pushed himself to the end of the bed and came out of the bed. But obviously he can't move, so he took his pillow and he put his pillow on the floor. And in a moment of recognition, he did ring me and my sister on his mobile phone and say, I'm on the floor, I've been here for an hour, the nurses can't see me. And they couldn't see him because Dad was in a room in A&E on a trolley, now, it, it, albeit a treatment room, it was, just, it was just next to the nurse's station, but the windows and the room doors were up high, so they couldn't see him. So he was on the floor for an hour, ringing me and my sister to say, can you ring the nurses at the nurses' station and tell them Janice, I'm on the floor? Janice, now, bear Janice. in mind, he didn't, he didn't fall out of bed. It wasn't neglect. Dad did push himself to the end of the bed because he was just so distraught, so agitated. He didn't know where he was. But as you can imagine, for us getting a phone call like that and having to ring and say, you know, my dad is on the floor. Can you go and pick him up? What did they say when you rang? Again, they said, look, he was agitated during the night and, you know, he didn't fall out of bed and he did put himself on the floor and I felt there was a little bit of... There was a little bit of hostility and well, again, they were doing a monstrous job up there. There was a little bit of hostility and I just wanted to get my point across. My dad had to ring us to tell us he was on the floor, albeit he didn't fall out of the bed. He didn't injure himself, but nobody had checked on him that morning and he had to ring us to say, I'm on the floor. Can you ring one of the nurses to get me up? Okay, okay. From 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. on the Sunday, uh, mm-hmm. you, you tell me... From 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. on Sunday the 3rd of April, not one nurse came with medication, vital checks, food, toilet change to my father. Because Dad had fallen out of the bed and because we'd had conversations with the nurses, they allowed one of us to be with him at all times. So myself and my sister were doing the daytime shifts. We'd go in in the morning and stay with him all day and my brother would stay overnight. And the day I was in there, there was a couple of checks. There was a couple of, you know, dad would have asked to go to the toilet and, you know, was told, oh, you have to wait, I'm with somebody else. And, you know, his dignity was already stripped from him. So, you know, to tell the man who doesn't know where he is to wait to go to the toilet until, God forbid, he soils himself. My sister was there on the Sunday and she texted me at six o'clock when my brother was taken over to say that not one nurse had come in to do a vital check to check if he wanted to go to the toilet with food. With anything. But that's seven now, hours. So that's a, that's yeah, a long time. It's an time. A&E department. They are busy. But, you know, you're stripping him of everything. Well, his dignity, for sure. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And his, his peace of mind and his presence of mind, it's now gone. And even when we were in with him for the couple of days, you know, it was very calming. We sat with him. We rubbed his hand. We told him stories about my mom and what was going to happen when he comes home, that we've got the sitting room all done for him. But he seems to have gone... Because he went up to a ward late Sunday night, early 
Monday morning and we're not allowed to see him now again because of COVID restrictions, mm. which I completely understand. He seems to have gone downhill now again. He doesn't know at all who we are now again. He's wondering why nobody's coming up to him. We don't know from one end of the day to the next. Is he being checked on? And, you know, they're not carers and I completely understand that. They have a job to do, but what dad needs now is care. Well, no, I mean, I think think everyone in the health and medical profession is a carer of sorts, you know. I mean, you know, checking Mm -hmm. in on somebody is... Is a basic human right in a hospital, surely yeah. I would have thought, you know. Um, and how are, his, how are his movements and his motor skills? His movements and his motor skills now are almost completely gone. His hands his hands are shaking uncontrollably to the point where he can't even hold a plastic glass of water to try and take tablets. He has to be fed his tablets and I have to hold water to his mouth. And again, I'm his daughter. That's okay for me to do because I want to do that. But when we're not there is anybody else doing that? You know, his tablets are being left on the side. His legs aren't working. If if you take him out of bed to try and take him to the bathroom himself, he he can't make it. He can't make it, you know, a couple of feet across the floor without being held or a wheelchair waiting for him. So your worry is, is he getting the proper care and attention when it comes to his needs and his medication and his food and his bathroom visit? But yeah. surely you can pick up the phone and ask them that. Neil, we have tried every avenue. We have emailed everybody. We have phoned everybody we have we've gone to the highest of the high in the Mercy Hospital for somebody to just sit with us just sit with us and say the operation didn't go as planned this is what's happening this is the plan going forward for somebody to just say we hear you we hear you nobody's doing that for us nobody will answer us mom got one call one call afterwards and that was it now I don't want to clearly I don't want to know any names of anybody that operated on your dad but did, did anybody after the operation who was part of the surgery team get in touch with you say that went very well or there are problems or complications or this is you know what we have to report? Did you get any kind of conversation like that? In an old-fashioned world, uh, word, sorry, an understudy um, rang my mom afterwards, an understudy of the surgeon, and just said it went as well as expected and we're just going to watch his recovery from here on in. Okay. And that was it. That was the only phone call. But, um, but you, you're not seeing recovery, though. You're seeing the opposite. I'm seeing the complete opposite. He is—he's rapidly going downhill, and we just want answers. If something did go wrong, just tell us something went wrong. Tell us what the plan is going forward. Tell us what we need to do as a family to get him home. We don't need his legs to work. We just want him back. But just tell us what happened. Um, can you talk to him on the phone, or can he even pick up a phone now at this stage? Because you can't go he in, can't obviously. Really yeah, we can't go in, and because of the the hand movement now and the shakes in his hand, as you can imagine, Dad trying to hold a phone to his ear, it's either going to drop up most times. My sister would normally ring and ask the nurses, can you put the phone in his hand so we can speak to him? But now, the last 24 hours, he's making absolutely no sense at all. He's talking about a choir he was in when he was young. He doesn't realise that he's married. He's making absolutely no sense at all. So he's going downhill without human touch. That's absolutely tragic, isn't it? For a man to walk into a... I mean, I, I can't comment on when, but what, what mm. the operation entailed, I don't know. Uh, but for somebody to walk in the front door, albeit yeah. slowly, um, and to find himself in this situation now, and for you as a family, you're, you're of course, broken-hearted because you think that he thinks you've abandoned him. He thinks we've abandoned him again because for the three days that we were all taking turns of being with Dad in A&E, in his lucid moments, in, in a moment where he knew who you were, he'd hold your hand and beg you to take him home. And I'll be really good if you take me home and I'll do everything you tell oh, me. Oh, no, that's so we sad. We were telling him, it's almost you know, we have, to put, 
it's completely childlike and we have the front room all done for him. We've got his bed ready. We've everything we need. He has seven children and we're all ready to do round-the-clock care. But we can't take him out oh, as of yet because we don't know if something would happen at home. But he's begging us to bring him home and he'll be good and he'll get better and he'll take all his tablets. And we're ready for that. We just want him back. But just... Just give us a plan. Just give us some honesty. I don't want to go down the Freedom of Information Act, but if that's what we have to do to find out what there's happens... There's no time that, for that. There's no time for that. That takes there's no, time. There's no time for that. At the moment, we're just seeing the man that we dropped at the hospital door and walked in fade away. And we're not willing to just stand back and let him die and be one of those families that firstly goes on a radio station and secondly stands outside court to say, this happened to my dad and we couldn't intervene and we're not that family. We know there's something wrong, so we just want answers. We just want clear and simple communication. Tell us what happened. Tell us what the plan is going forward, and we'll all jump on board. What happened? Just communicate. And what's the plan going forward? Two very simple, straightforward questions. Have you gone all the way up to administration within the hospital and everything? Absolutely. I've made a formal complaint. I did have somebody reach out to me and come back to me last week to say that she'd escalated, but as of yet, I've heard nothing. And I don't want to take on a hospital, Neil. Neither do my family, nor should we have to take on a hospital. And this is the kind of stuff that you stand back and you hear about and you compartmentalise and you think, God, that's awful that it's happening to that family. But no, it's us. It's happening to but us. But maybe now. his recovery I, is just slower than expected, hopefully. Do you think? Maybe? He's not recovering, though. He's getting worse. He's getting absolutely worse. And the recovery from this simple heart surgery that she should have had, nothing nothing of this scale was explained to us. You know, when you take tablets and they give you a worst-case scenario, you know, you could put on weight, you could hallucinate. Nothing like this was explained that could happen because it was a nominated surgery that he could have opted out of. But really? Because we were told... But was it not life-saving, though? It. It, was, it was a blockage. It was a blockage. Dad could, have, Dad could have lived happily, you know, for the next 10, 15 years with this blockage. But, you know, it was decided, OK, now that we know that it's there, let's get it done. Come on, Dad. Off you go. Off you go. Routine. You'll be hale and hearty. Yeah. In fact, you'll be in an awful lot better shape. Yeah. yeah, and we joked with him. Listen, you need to tell us where the, the money is buried because one of us needs to get it. And <laughs> we'll see you on Thursday. And and now we're still trying to joke with him. Listen, <laughs> as you kind of How do you keep you it you together, to though? How do you keep it together? That kind we of need worry. to keep it together for my mom because they're, they're, they're married 52 years. They're with each other 59 years. She's absolutely broken and lost at home without him. She's absolutely broken. So we as a family are trying to keep it together for her, all while fighting for his rights, then keeping her in some way, some sanity to what's going on because she's looking to us for answers. We're her children and she's, she's looking to us, you know, can you get answers to me, Janice? Can you that, get answers? I know, there must be an awful that? sense of helplessness though because you have your mum and clearly all of you upset yeah. and your dad saying, I'll be good, let me go home, I promise I'll take my tablets. That's heartbreaking to hear, it really is. And the world still, the world still goes on and we all have full-time jobs and we're all, you know, hard-working people. The world still goes on but you just wanted to stop for a minute and say, hang on a second, hang on a second, something's wrong with my dad and nobody's telling me what, so can you all just hang on a second? But we're also trying to hold down full-time jobs, kids, school, all the while dealing with this. Well, I would have thought it would have been fairly common or even routine in itself for those involved in the surgery to get in touch with the family and say, this mm-hmm. is, you know, I, I don't know whether they're just non-committal because, I, I don't know, maybe, you know, with the world that we live in now, they don't want to say too much um, because uh, they don't want to preempt what could happen next, but that they would yeah. give some, do you know what I'm saying? That, but I think they should give All I want s- is an indication of what happened and what's the plan going forward. It's two simple things. There's no blame here. There's no hiding anything here. No, but there's, if something did, like, like, like let's say if something did go wrong, I'm not for a moment mm-hmm. suggesting, um, yeah. I think they would... It then I think, becomes a cover-up. I, no, I'm not even saying that. I just think there'd be slow, there would, protocols would kick in then where admissions would not be yeah. made, you know, they, they wouldn't be allowed Absolutely. to. 
you know. Yeah. But you're left, of course. Fine, but I, I really feel like we're being we're being ghosted at this stage. I mean, at least say, listen, we will set up an appointment for you, you know, two family members to come and meet with the team that operated on your dad. We will do antigen tests, PCR tests, whatever we need to do to get into that hospital to sit in front of people and say, okay, okay, let's lay it all out. What happened? Was it that his body wasn't able? Did something happen in the surgery? Tell us what happened and tell us the plan going forward so we can care for dad. I know, I know, I know, I know. And it sounds simple and for anybody else, you know, for anybody else to say it out loud, it sounds simple, but to get to that answer, the amount of roadblocks that are put in front of us is absolutely horrendous and so painful. And all you can think really is that something went wrong and that's why you're not getting any information. Exactly. And now all we're thinking about is dad has been alone in a ward now, albeit with other people, but dad is alone in a ward now. If he comes out of the bed again, if he hits the floor, if he gets COVID, God forbid, he's not going to survive that. So our, our pain is intensified by he's alone now in there. Yeah, and you're wondering, is he being fed and is he getting checked yeah. and is he getting medication or is he in getting to the bathroom or whatever, yeah. you know, I know. And, you, and there's no circumstances that allow you in at all now at the moment, no? We have gone around in circles, so I got... One of us nominated the last time he was in a ward. He was moved to a different ward. So I, again, had to take on the fight of getting one of us nominated to get in. He's now in a brand new ward. And again, I'm talking to the nurses, the wards, uh, managers. Can one of us just come in for a half an hour every night? We'll do everything you need us to do. We will put on full PPE. But again, I'm just being faced with no, no, no COVID restrictions. And I totally understand COVID restrictions. I worked all through COVID in hospitality. Mm, I, I understand COVID restrictions, but in compassionate circumstances and we're there to help if we're there to feed dad and give dad his tablets and take him to the bathroom or do what needs to be done surely that's helping the nurse I would think it would but I don't make these calls with regards to you know yeah. infection controls in hospitals but I would have thought that a de- you know a dedicated member of the family all PPE'd yeah. up would be a huge help to a hospital system yeah, I would exactly. have thought I would have thought that too which is why I'm you know I'm pushing and pushing and pushing to keep getting somebody nominated now that he's an award again to get into him and just give him the care and affection that he needs. Well, for us listening to your story, of course, it's evidence of uh, the state of our health service at the moment. Um, and it's, Absolutely. It's, 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 it's far from... It's far from acceptable, you know, no disrespect mm-hmm. to those who work on the front line on it. I, I understand yeah. all of that. You know, like, there's, nobody in, there's nobody in any way, shape or form being cruel, you know. Um, it's just, yeah. you know, I suppose they just under pressure you know I mean and it is it's the state it's the state of the play in the hospital but, and we all hear about it on the news stories but yeah. when it comes home to you it's like oh my god but we don't want you to be the family on the hospital on the uh, on the courtrooms on the court steps uh, yeah. after going the, down the, the legal route having you know uh, not necessarily lost your dad but certainly you know his, his, his quality of life being taken from to. him no no yeah his, everything has been taken from him and it, we just give us a plan Give okay. Just it, give them back to us. Yeah. Um, they they won't comment to the likes of me about individual cases, no. but I'm I'm very happy to reach out to the HSE to see um, if they have anything to say on the matter. They they won't comment on your dad's condition, or they won't comment to mm-hmm. me on anything to, because of um, patient confidentiality. But it, it might make a difference in in expediting, um, you mm-hmm. know, information your way. You know. 
And we'd appreciate that because, I mean, as you can tell at this stage, we're literally at our wit's end. We, I don't know where else to go. I'm, you know, my computer is about to blow up from emails being sent to different having no luck TVs there. and everything like yeah. this. Having absolutely no luck, as you know, um, you know, you get a generic, a generic email back, and I've gotten a lot of generic emails back. What if you, what if you just, what case. if you just kept calling to the mercy? I'm, and again, this is a, this is a personal, a personal um, choice. I'm worried that if I keep calling the ward that he's in, or if I keep fighting with the nurses that we're trying to get in, that in some way, shape, or form, Dad's care might might suffer for it. So I'm I'm very conscious of that as well. That I don't want to be that girl who's ringing constantly where the nurses are shaking their heads to say Janice is on the phone again. Can somebody go and check that man? I'm very conscious of that as well. I don't want dad's care to suffer anymore. So it's impossible for a family member as distraught and worried as you to set up a meeting with the hospital administrator. Yeah, they, they've given me a generic email back saying that they will escalate the um, complaint okay. and somebody right. will be in touch with nobody. It's not a complaint, actually. Sure, it's not. It's just information. No, it's not. It's clarification, it's just information. explanation. Yeah. Yeah. Information okay. and a plan. Just tell us a plan and what went wrong. Okay, okay. Um, well, let's see if we, we have any success with um, HSE Press. But it, it again, for us listening to it, gives a, a very, very vivid and a very accurate account of the Irish health system at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. Do stay in touch, Janice, will you? I will, of course. Okay. Yes. And and thanks for taking my call. And so, and vice versa, we'll come back to you if we have any information or update, okay? Amazing. Thanks so much. Okay. All right. Take care. You Thank and you. your wonderful father, Joe. Uh, text 0868104106. That's uh, an example of, uh, you know, how families are going through awful worry and, of course, the unknown, really, when there's no information uh, coming to them from the Irish health system. Meanwhile, Michael, good morning. Good morning, Neil. Thanks for holding. Ten years ago, I was admitted with pains in my chest, and and, uh, I was taken down to the operating theatre at a quarter past five. Did you say ten years ago? Yes. Okay. Uh, Okay. Okay. So, uh, put in the tubes, everything perfect, and started. The surgeon spoke to me, and he said, you need two stints, take 10 to 15 minutes. So he put in the first stint, no problem. Second stint put in. And as the gas went off, one of the nurses started screaming. So... uh, Were you conscious for this? Yes, you know, you're just lying there, which are... uh, You can't move. Okay. And uh, one of the nurses started screaming, completely lost it. Screaming what? Just crying. It, it just so the surgeon went back in with a pump. Uh, it, it's a balloon. It's called, and now I know it's a balloon to open the first ends. It had burst. Uh, so they used the the foot pump to try and open it. To inflate it, is it or what? Inflate it. Right. And he got stuck. He couldn't take it back out. I, I cut, cut it short. Five hours later, I end up with six stints. So that should have been a like a routine, you said, 15-minute yeah. thing, is it? 15 minutes. Yeah. Five hours later, um, I end up with six stints and he said 
this is going to hurt. The Asian doctor had to put his 16 stone weight and put pressure on my leg for 25 minutes while moving his fingers at the, to get circulation right. back work. Yeah. A surgeon told me lately, this is a procedure you use in a war zone. Did they, you usually use, yeah. they usually use sandbags to keep pressure on your leg. Right. Right, so... Did you recover? Yes. <laughs> so, in taken back up to the to the um, ward uh, and discharged four days later. <laughs> and I return. I'm having severe leakage in my chest, acid running across me, and violent headaches. So, I go up and explain it. And they brushed me off. Really? It's my heart. It's my heart that they put in the stints. Nothing to do with my chest. So this goes on anyway for eight months. And then I'm called to the day ward. And again, I'm down on the table. And he goes back in. And he stops the heart. And it starts again. Did that improve matters? And he stops the heart again. And uh, it starts again. So I said to him, don't do that again. You know. And he take I'm taken off the the table and put back in the bed. Right. I'm brought back down to the ward. It's in October. And I asked the nurse for a drink of water. She said, no, you're going back up again. They're putting in two more stints. You already have eight in there? No, I have six. Six, sorry, so this is eight. They didn't put any in yet, but I'd be, they'd be called, an emergency had come in and that they were going to put two more stints. And is the point of your conversation with me that operations can go wrong? No. Complete cover up uh, uh, on the. So I'm waiting an hour, two hours, and I can't take a drink, anything. And the nurse comes up and gives me a cup of tea. She said, We're not doing anything today. There was a work to rule on. So they, ke- they kept me overnight and sent me home. So for the last eight years, eight or nine years, I have never got the other two stints in. And what's your life like? What's your health like? What's your heart like? The pain is unbelievable. Lately, I've just got uh, private health insurance, so I'm attending a pain doctor in a different hospital, and he has gone in under my ribcage. When he got stuck inside, he scared all under my chest, which they have denied from the word go. Oh, the original got... operation. Yeah. Yeah. So, I have never got an apology. I never got the other two stints in. They told me um, my heart was too weak to take it. So, and, but you, you, be- you believe that something went wrong. Well, if you're a yes. nurse screaming, yes. you, you'd think that there was a reason no, for it. The nurse 
the nurse was screaming or crying for the five hours I was on the table. She was, on, she was a young nurse and she couldn't control her. It was complete chaos in, in, in the operating theatre. Complete chaos. You could hear a pin drop. As well as that, the stents he used, you can't use the balloon to open. Okay. Right. And how's your heart now? I mean, is it is it? Oh, it's destroyed. Oh, it's really? Talking, I mean, yes, yes. I was in A and E lately, and it was chopped at around thirty beats. Thirty beats and per minute. Went, yes, yes. So you must have no in, you must have no energy then. Yes, with the headaches are unbelievable. And thirty beats per minute. Thirty beats per minute, and it's different. The uh, on the left hand side it's thirty on the right hand side it's thirty two. Don't but ask me. It, it's not possible, right? The, a lot of things are not possible. Okay. But this right. is the way. This is the life I have lived for the last ten years now. And they keep denying that there was anything wrong with my chest. That it was my heart. The operation. And did you ever go see a solicitor about no, this? Or no, no, f- I've never gone to anybody legally. But four or five weeks ago, my retired GP, he denied it as well, came to me and he said, you're the picture of health. I said, thank you, Doc, and that's great. He said, I want regret. He said, the, the way I treated you, um, I'm sorry. It's my one major regret. The one major regret of his medical career? Listen, he, right. he said to me, he had denied all the time that there was anything wrong with my chest. And he said to me then, how many years did it take from the scarring in your chest to heal? I said, it never healed. And he walked out. All right. Okay. And that all happened okay. on the on the operating table. And you're not going to progress it any further, no? I don't know where to go. Mm. Well, you 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 uh, could go down a route of medical negligence if you felt that that was right. Yeah, I, yeah. I need. Uh, and get your files, whatever they may no, be. No, I I have all the reports. You, you know that they send me back. I went for MRIs, everything. Nothing on the any of the reports. I have all this. Um, nothing uh, on any of the reports say anything about my heart mm. or the scarring in my chest. Mm. And I still don't know what's scarring. And what's your quality of life like now? Some days it's very good. But uh, it's just the headaches and the pain in the chest all the time. But you must be short of breath all the time, eh? No, not all the time. It's, mm. see, it can go back up to 60. Like, actually, pretty normal. You know? But it can drop to 30. 30. 30, and it's different on the left-hand side to uh, and the uh, right-hand side. Right. Like, uh, I've only been in NAMI there for a couple of days in a different hospital, which I got marvellous care, and they have given me new okay. treatment, which is good. Okay, okay. Mind yourself, Michael. Thanks for taking the call. Appreciate it. Okay. Text 0868104106. 
Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 0818-104-106. Red FM. Scary going into hospital these days for lots of different reasons, isn't it? Text 0868-104-106. Thank you for the emails and topics from uh, last week's programs, uh, amongst them domestic abuse and coercive control. On the subject of coercive control, I have been subject to this to years of abuse by a man who I thought was going to be the love of my life. He used to keep me up at night just to exhaust me. He subjected me to all kinds of mental abuse and eventually turned our children against me. His abuse almost cost me my job and I have now sadly lost contact with our children. He tried to destroy me and although I am heartbroken, I'm making it out the other side with the help of my friends. I'm not going to let him defeat me. I want other women going through the same hell to know that there is light at the end of the tunnel and to always trust your gut. It never lies. Uh, That's uh, an extraordinary email for many different reasons, but amongst them that he had the power to even turn your children, the children you gave birth to, against you. You know, we were talking about uh, other forms of control, um, I suppose undue influence of an elderly person. This could be a father or a mother. And we were talking about this last week because uh, Paddy O'Brien was saying that he hears it quite often. Uh, that whoever is in charge of the will or indeed the bank account, um, I'm not always saying this happens, but he said it happens all uh, way too often that they're draining the bank account. They may have the ATM card or indeed that they're getting their loved one, one particular family member it can be, uh, to change their will in that person's favour. Um, I cannot thank you enough for raising this issue of undue influence of an elderly parent on your show. The solicitor you had on was 100% correct. We as a family went through pretty much the same thing you described. I'd love to be able to go on air, but it would only cause further heartache for the entire family. I had a brother, uh, because I had a brother, because I disowned him, who was ex- 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 executor of my mother's will. He also had power of attorney over her as she was in care because of her dementia. Well, he cleaned out her bank accounts to fund, to fund his lavish lifestyle and left us, the rest of the family, with nothing after she passed away. At one point, the care home were going to turf my mother out onto the street because the bill for her care hadn't been paid for months. Eventually, he paid the money owing. He now turns up to family events and funerals without a care in the world as if nothing ever happened. In hindsight, I can tell you there were many red flags, but as they say, hindsight is twenty twenty vision. Incidentally, Paddy O'Brien is correct. There should be more than one executor of a will. And one other one regarding your discussion on the issue of undue influence of an elderly person. I was very surprised that uh, lasting power of attorney was not discussed as an option for many of your examples. Lasting power of attorney. I have this agreement in place with my elderly relative. It cuts, it cuts out all of the messing. Lasting power of attorney is, of attorney is an ongoing arrangement with no expiry date that will allow another person to make decisions on your behalf. There are two different types, property and affairs and health and welfare. Lasting powers of attorney can make things easier for you and the people you are close to as your dementia progresses. In our case, myself and my sister can enact the LPA. There's a third party involved where a person independent of the family, a friend of my relative, can stop the process if they suspect something untoward, a third person. At all points, the elderly person decides what's best for them. If we were to decide in the morning we wanted my aunt to go into a nursing home, she would first need to be assessed by a GP 
and then a certified geriatrician. I know this is a side to the executor piece you spoke about, but it would cut out a lot of the messing, the worry and the surprises. Lasting power of attorney. Thank you for those. One or two more. I'm just wondering, is it an offence for an executor to not read a will? I mean, I can't understand why they wouldn't want to read the will. I mean, it certainly would be very suspicious to me whether it's an offence or not. I don't know. What recourse does a beneficiary have to hold an account, to hold to account an executor who's also a benefactor? Can't tell you that um, because uh, I don't actually know whether the person you're talking about has passed away or not. And one question, well, it's too late to ask the question now, but it's an unrelated question. A friend of mine was awarded €17,000 in compensation plus awards of medical and legal fees. Um, What was his €700 bill from his solicitor about? Um, And I'm wondering, is this an isolated case? Well, I suppose there's two different things here. If you get compensation, do you get it with or without medical or without legal fees? I mean, if you get it with legal fees, then your solicitor should not be billing you in any way, shape or form. It should be paid by the other side, wouldn't it? Anyway, text 0868104106. We'll pick it up after 10. I'm Rory. And I'm Valerie. And you can join us for the very best in local, national and international sport every weekend on The Big Red Bench. That's The Big Red Bench. Every Saturday and Sunday from 6 on Cork's Red FM. Get it off your chest. Text the Neil Brinderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. Talking about drizzle, leading on to rain, leading on to water. Uh, an interesting segue. I have tickets to give away uh, for Riverdance. Live at the Marquee on Friday, 3rd of June. It's great to be even talking about Live at the Marquee being back again and all of the wonderful gigs across the summer. So Riverdance tickets between now and midday today when I open the phone line. So here's a tongue twister for you. Well, it's not really. The the theme is aquatic, uh, as in water, river dance, water. So three songs, artists and titles, all to do or connected to water, aqua, call it what you wish. Uh, So these three songs, not now, but when I open the phone lines a little later on, artists and titles in the correct order, and they are all connected to water. I only ask you to show me All right, artists and titles, please, in the correct order. We'll open the phone lines a little later on, 0818-104-106. Riverdance, live at the Marquee, Friday, June 3rd. From Friday's programme, and boy, we had a lot of sport. It was April Fool's Day on Friday, and of course, uh, if you were listening to the programme, a lot of people got very incensed about it, I have to say, about reducing the speed limits in Cork to save people money and all that. Mind you, um, many people took it very seriously. Another making money-making exercise and more speed vans. Have you ever heard such nonsense? Well, it actually was a load of nonsense. But, um, you know, I, I think it's a good thing to keep these April Fool's Days going. It's not as if we haven't got much to laugh about. So 1st of April gives us an opportunity to play pranks and have a bit of a laugh. What about scooters doing more than 30 kilometres around the city? The city limit was 30 kilometres. Um, and suburban as well. Um Driving at lower speeds means lower gears, which means more petrol and diesel will be used and more emissions. This makes no sense. Well, it doesn't make any sense because it wasn't true. One thing about the uh, new speed limit laws is that it's the political death knell for Martin McGran Coveney on Leaside. Good riddance to them. (laughs) I'm sorry, but the cutting speed is ridiculous. From experience, doing doing 30 in a car uses more fuel than 50. I can't go 30 kilometres in fifth gear. 
I'd need to drive in third gear. These are the kind of texts I was getting. How will a speed van know if your car is electric or not? I was telling you on Friday that these redu- reductions in speed did not apply to electric vehicles. Uh, surely be to God you copped it when I said that when you get to the county bounds, there'd be a fellow with a black and white checkered flag telling you to slow down. Um, and there's just loads of them. So thank you for being on board and I uh, hope you got a good laugh out of it. It's April 1st on Friday, so it's good to do those kind of things. Lots then on passports and things like that, which I'll come back to, but I'm just conscious of uh, many calls standing by. So I'll plow ahead and come back to text a little later on. Rachel, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Now, you heard uh, Janice's story on behalf of her dad, Joe, right? I did, Uh, And the routine surgery that he went in for and the situation they find themselves in now. You wanted to reach out to her, was it? Yeah, I just wanted to say in um, in October two thousand and twenty, um, my father would have had pains in his back or whatever, you know, and he was due to go into uh, the CUH. So I dropped him off of a Thursday morning, just a routine thing for him, and I was meant to come and collect him on the Friday. So I just hugged my dad, dropped him off, and hugged my dad, and I said to him, "Look, I'll be back on Friday," and. My dad went in and, no, he obviously didn't come out on the Friday. And within 24 hours, I would say, my father went delirious. Just hadn't a clue who we were. Um, it was just the setting of the hospital that the nurse said to me. Because at the time, you know, with COVID, you couldn't go in. Yeah. But we were set a time, you know, like say, one visitor per patient in the evening of yeah. the COH. Yeah. So we lined up and went in to see my dad and what they said was, I said, this isn't the man that I handed over uh, on Thursday morning at the, you know, at the door. And the nurse said, look, Rachel, it's like this. Um, when they're like 70 or older, if they just get a little bit delirious with the setting of the hospital. And Neil, I wasn't buying it at all. I said, no, no, this isn't the man. He, he went completely, if I could say, Gaga. He was ringing us all hours of the night, um, didn't know where he was, was back home. Like, my father is from Mallow originally, but um, he thought he was back in his um, hometown town where he grew up. And we were like, oh my God, kept ringing everybody at night, didn't know where he was, why wasn't my mother there, and totally delirious. Yeah. So I just went out to the nurse and I said, look, no, there's something wrong you just said something wrong with the medication or something and she said no 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 I'm telling you she said he'll be fine he'll be fine and need to be fair look my dad went through a terrible terrible year <clears throat> and was it um, heart was it heart surgery Rachel no my dad I, I, after the Monday I think Monday Tuesday look we heard that you know he had to go for a PET scan I knew straight away that was cancer so my dad has lymphoma and He's had a terrible, terrible year last year. We couldn't. My, I got a phone call at what time? About twenty past seven in the morning. Look, your dad crashed. Um, you look. I'm going to prepare you in a minute. You know, so you have the DNR in place. Blah blah blah. Right. He was worried. I mean, he picked up everything. He got COVID. He had sepsis. He has. Um, <sighs> oh, look. He had a list of everything, and a few times. Look. He was on the critical list for a, a good few times. And all this time, we weren't allowed into the hospital 
weren't allowed in, you know, and I, I, I pleaded with them. I said, look, I'll come up and I sit with my dad. I don't care. I, I stayed there for 24 hours. Just look after him. He was on the phone like your, like Janice's father. Yeah. My dad rang me from a ward to say that he was on the floor, that he fell, he got a cut, he, he got a cut in the head. He was actually on the floor and I actually had to ring the hospital and the nurse said, oh yes, he did. But I said, why, why did I have to wait for somebody, for my father to ring me? Why didn't he ring me? So is this another case of another father who rang family to say I've fallen out of the bed? I tell you, I was here one day and my father rang, my friend called me, my father rang me hysterical. He was actually, at this stage, he was in the COVID ward. My father picked up COVID. He was very, very sick and he was in the COVID ward. And he rang me and he was hysterical. Delirious now as well from the thing. And I know you might say, look, maybe he, like there was a, um, the nurse's station was outside his ward. He said there was nobody there. So I had to take my friend's a, a phone and ring the hot this station because my dad was looking for somebody he wanted to go to the bathroom. He was hooked up to all these wires and heart monitors and whatever. And there was nobody there. You know, I eventually got in. They eventually left me into the COVID ward to my dad. And it was just, it was just handed. I could see. But they probably but were with, but, but when you, oh, okay. Listen, they were probably listen, with patients. I understand. I understand. No, there's clearly oh, not enough for them to begin with. And no, they're, they're bringing in agency not. staff because there's not enough oh. full-time staff. So they're probably Absolutely. just. Absolutely. Look, one, I, I put my hand on my heart and say my dad got excellent care up there. But the thing is, they are totally run off their feet. So he did fall they, out of the bed then cut his head, though, did My he? father did fall out of the bed. Right, okay. And listen, I, we have photographed here. My father came home with a big gash on his head, came home with needles stuck in his arm. We have all that here. Like, it is happening. It is happening. But what I am seeing is... And you know the confusion? Um, the, what the, the nurse? Because like, I remember yeah. years ago... Mm-hmm. I think I was talking with someone, I don't know whether it was on the air, or somebody was telling me the story of somebody yeah. who went for routine heart work. I don't think it was invasive yeah. heart surgery, but it had something to do with valves and things. But yeah. after the surgery, for a number of days, this yeah. this person was saw people in the room or sitting in in the hospital sitting outside on the on the ledge of the of of the of the bedroom, you know, um yeah. sitting at the end of his bed, sitting next to him. Uh, children, you know, these these were uh, these were appar- oh yeah. apparitions. But it all yes. imagine it all had to do with pressure on the brain, you know, yeah. after surgery. But and it passed away after four or five days. Me and my father wasn't even after having surgery at this stage. He was only in there twenty four hours, and you know we we were only allowed in there like maybe maybe for half an hour in the evening time. And my father was saying to me, "Take a look, take a look," and I was saying, "What?" There's a wax under the bed there. There's wax under the bed. But look, and then he, he, he would go off and he said, but we got the best seats there on the plane. And I'm like, what is going on here? That's all after surgery, surely be to God. But, but he wasn't even after having surgery. It was just, they said, the nurse said to me, she said, Rachel, I'm telling you, when your dad goes home, it's this setting, it's their, it's their age, and it's, I don't know, Neil, it's just, and I, I just wasn't buying it. I just said, no, not a hope. And did it pass and away? Did it, it pass, it, though? It, Neil, yeah. I tell you what now, my dad has been at death's door. Um, my dad, I won't say no, he's perfect. He's in remission right now. But through all the times of him being in hospital, he doesn't remember. And we're relaying back stories to yeah, him. Yeah, I know. And he's saying, I no, know. I've I never. Uh, we said, Dad, you have, like, you, you've, you've done this, you know, and... 
he he'd be very uh, apologetic. Like he actually thought my mother was actually leaving him and left him and went to Australia. Amazing. And until I brought him home and we got to a certain part of uh, the street, it, his his mind just 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 changed and we brought him in the door and he cried and cried he saw my mother in front of him and he cried and cried he oh the just, confusion it, for the misfortune it was just on top of everything else in his diagnosis it was the confusion it was just desperate I hope that I hope that Janice finds the same situation with her dad's recovery that he will improve and improve and improve but she feels as if he's presenting like a stroke victim can't walk can't yes, articulate yes, doesn't recognise family my, Neil, I tell you, my father came home. He was in a wheelchair. We had nurses, you know, like um, coming out to the house. Uh, we had Mary Mount on the phone. We had, you name it, we had it. And my dad got into the car yesterday with my brother-in-law and drove for the first time. Delighted you to hear know? Delighted So, like, I'm yeah. just saying that, like, there is hope. But I, I, I'm just going back on the thing that her, her father's inside at the moment and she thinks that he's delirious. It, the nurse did say to me, look, it is because of a hospital setting. And at a certain age, it does happen. Confusion, is it? Confusion sets Yes, yeah, yes. Okay. And she right. did try to explain to me, you know, and I, like at the time I was saying, no, I'm not having it. But it did, it did subside. All right. It, it did, yeah. you know. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Super. Nice to chat with you, Rachel. Regards to you Thank and the family. You so Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for you. Um, and uh, I hope that Janice heard that and it will come maybe as some consolation or maybe uh, might rise, ra- it might rise her optimism uh, for the future for her dad. Who knows? Back after the break. Get it off your chest. Call Neil Prenderville now on 0818 What a weekend it was, particularly on Saturday, although it wasn't just Saturday. People were climbing mountains and hills all weekend and they were doing it, of course, with one thing in mind. That was to help others and Charlie Bird was the man who started it all off his own campaign it's expected now to pass the 2 million euro mark and of course uh, Charlie diagnosed with motor neuron disease last year got to the top of Croke Patrick with many many people there to support him up he went the 72 year old uh, and raised his stick in triumph at the top of Croke Patrick itself and as I say people were walking all over the country it was a great weekend of togetherness, if you like. And with that in mind, Marie, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How thank are you, you? Thank you so much for taking the call. You did your own walk at the weekend for your own partner, the late Jim Timmons. Is that right? That's right, Neil. We did. We did only Patrick's Hill now. But it, only know, nothing. <laughs> I mean, trying to climb Patrick's Hill any day is a tough thing to do, girl. Uh, sure. All right, just move around a little bit there, Marie. My, my daughter was with me and uh, granddaughter, so we we sailed way up the hill and spoke about everything, you know, so it was nice to achieve it, you know. Yeah, in memory of your partner, Jim, of course, who um, sadly passed to motor neuron disease. He did, yes. He yeah. passed uh, two years now for the 26th of June. I know, um, I know. Maybe, Jim, yeah. Did you find it emotional at the weekend? Oh, very emotional. But on a real emotional weekend now between that now um, and yet Charlie and what a fantastic man, the way he achieved going up there, you know. I know, I know. I know. You'd have all sorts of emotions, wouldn't you? Happiness and oh, sadness. You would, of course. And you know, like, it, it, it kind of stuck a card in last night. There was a program on, uh, it's called SOS. Uh, it is Ash does it there. Um, 
Baz Ashley, I think is yeah, his name. Yeah. And uh, he he had a lad on and he had motor neuron as well. And that was very emotional as well. It kind of brought it all back again, you know. It's a cruel disease, isn't it? Oh, it's an awful disease. It's a, it's a death sentence, really, mean, you know. And look, when you're diagnosed with it, you're going to be angry at the start. But you just, you know, we spoke about it. We cried. And, you know, the way we looked at it, we had to get on with it, you yeah, know. I know, I know. I and know. it was during COVID. It was the start of COVID, actually, when the Jim was diagnosed. So I kept my home all the time and we nursed him at home here. It was rapid enough, enough, so wasn't it, Marie? Very rapid. He was diagnosed the 20th of January and he was gone on the 26th of June. But yeah. before that, Neil, there was a lead up to it because he was starting to fall on me and he was dragging his leg and then the hand went and then he was starting to stumble with his words. And, and was he wondering what was going wrong? He, do you know what? Afterwards, he said to me, Zemar, I had a... Deep down, he said, I had a feeling what was wrong because he had two friends that had passed from it a couple of years before that, Neil. So he and was able to interpret the signs, was he? He was. He was able to kind of look at the way they were suffering as well. And um, I heard just after Christmas, I turned around and I said, Jim, I think you need to go into the band soon for a little tea and we'll see what comes out. Okay, it, you know? yeah. Because, you see, the doctors were kind of putting it down to arthritis and, you know, like, as, as the man said last night, we were hoping that was MS <laughs> at the end of the day. And, like, it's an awful thing to be hoping for. But um, when he was diagnosed on, on the 20th of January, if all hell broke loose, then he knew straight away then. He said, the nine lives are up now, Mar, you know? And, yeah, I was going to add, do you mind telling me how he reacted to it? Well, we cried, you know, we cried. And he turned around and he looked, he said... This is it now, because Jim had come through pancreatic cancer 11 years before that. Yeah. Which was very unusual for somebody to survive. Fair to him, yeah, that can be tough, you know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he had two bypasses down through the years, so he went through his chair, you know. And he felt and that he was on his last life, the nine yes, lives were up. the nine lives were up. So, look, we, we brought him home and we looked after him here and so he had a bit of bother, no gentle, gentle soul, you know. And... Um, you know, he never complained or anything. Did he never complain? Did he, I mean, he came to terms with it, did he? I mean, was he not very frightened or angry or worried? You know, we went through all the first kind of week, you know, and then we kind of settled down and said, look, what can we do? We have to keep going now and we go as long as we can. Then, you know, my daughter came home from Canada then to see him for his birthday and it turned out to be a great booster altogether, you know. Very brave so, man. Um, Grave. Oh, he was so positive. He was positive in everything, you know what I mean? Any illness he went through, I'd be back out no more. I'd be back out, we'd be fine again, you know? And he did. But not he must have been, it seems to me it's the kind of chap that had a very positive, happy disposition in life, did he? Oh, sure. Fierce, positive altogether. Everything was possible. You know, everything was possible with him. He'd always say to me, oh, we'd come out to the other side of this, you know, we'd be fine, we'd be fine. And we did. 99% of the time we did. But this thing got him then, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, look, did you have good chats now, about your life together and your love we, for each we other? Did, we did. So we had great times together. Jeez, we travelled everywhere together, you know, and we loved going to Spain and loved the heat and loved the sun and the beach and the walks. And he was, a, I mean, he was a fit man up to about, I'd say, 80 years of age. He was a fit man. And after that, then, the minute that that happened, then, don't. I know, I know. It's an awful you thing know, to have to, so It's an awful thing to say goodbye. I'd say. 
Oh, shit, it's terrible. But he went off peacefully here in the house with me and, you know, like we were all here and he just closed his eyes and went off so peacefully. And, and was, we had him here, then we waked him here in the house. And um, so was, we were very lucky, Neil, because on the Monday, he died on the 26th and on the Monday was the opening of the churches and we could have 50 at the Mass and the full Mass. and. I was so happy for that, you know. I know, I know, I know. So, I know. listen, like... Oh, where did you meet? Do you recall where you met and how oh, you got sure, together? Oh, sure, we, we met through friends, you know, so... Mm. Yeah, and um, we had great times together, and it's been honest about it, we had fabulous times. And, and that's what you look back And, you know, I never, I'm never kind of... Um, I'm preventing and, No, I know, you know. Yeah, I know, I know. So 30, just, 32 great years of love together. 32 yeah. great, great years. And, and on Saturday, yeah, yeah. When we've done the walk on Saturday there, it's amazing. Then, like, when I came back home, that the people were after handing in money to me. <laughs> Even when I went out to the grave yesterday, people came up to me and said, look, put that towards the motor nor on there, man, whatever, you know. Yeah, I know. And your so, walk, you walked up Patrick's Hill while your daughter did a, 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 did a climb in Canada, did she? She did, yeah, she did. <laughs> oh, it's a very emotional Mom, day. Yeah, you'll find it hard to find a hill where she's living there. It's all flatland, you know. <laughs> <laughs> she's in the prairies, is she? And she went off looking and she, she sent me a video and she said, you won't believe this though, but this is a grassy bank, you know. <laughs> and what did she do? Only roll down it. <laughs> okay, well, I suppose... So, she, you, you did it, of course, as part of the Charlie climb, but in oh, memory did, and in yeah. honour of your wonderful husband and, and her yeah. dad. Yeah. Yes, uh, well, uh, my partner, you know, Neil. Partner, and, um, sorry. Yeah. yeah, partner, yeah. yeah. But like that, no way. Look, we do anything to help the motor neuron because they ha- they're not being subsidised or anything by the government. And um, all they're depending on is, is uh, like the likes of ourselves doing fundraising and tea parties. Because when Jim passed in June on his anniversary, then I kind of done a tea party here, you know? Yeah. And I raised 1650 Fair play to That's a handy yeah. amount of money on tea and scones. <laughs> there was a few babies so they don't do it <laughs> <laughs> okay. well listen so well done we had to do that we yeah, had to do yeah. that well but, um, and please God this year we'll do the same so I, I'm after gathering some money there no, since yesterday as well and I'll wait till the end of the week and send it off to him again isn't it you know? so isn't it criminal that there's not more funding isn't it really oh, and I wouldn't mind only but like the equipment that was brought into the house here for Jim was unbelievable I know. Spades, yeah. you know and he had everything that was going you know, even though we have the bedroom downstairs from he had everything that they brought in for me and nurses and everything were fabulous you okay. know okay. so you don't do anything on your own being honest about it you have oh, helped sure you know, know, and right. the family were outstanding to me okay. as well my own family you okay. know okay. look after yourself so, Marie and, I will of course uh, thank you for sharing thanks your story for ringing. Thanks, okay. thanks for well done on your march well done on your walk up St. Patrick's Hill not the easiest thing in the world at any age I can tell you you know you talk about funding Um, I was reading an interesting one at the weekend where the model Bella Hadid um, followed the people before Prophet TD Richard Boyd Barrett on Instagram and she shared one of Richard Boyd Barrett's posts Um, bear in mind now 
that she's got 50 million followers on Instagram, the model Bella Hadid, apparently. And what was the post that she shared? Well, it was a post by Richard Boyd Barrett, who claimed that the government provided 88 million euro funding for horse racing Ireland. And uh, also, incidentally, provides, I'm told, something in the region of 18 million a year funding for greyhounds. But the post actually said uh, the model, who has over 50 million followers on Instagram, shared the post, which claims the government provided 88 million funding for horse racing and 30 million funding for domestic violence refuges. There's a big difference in that, isn't it, when it comes to particularly women and children fleeing domestic violence and horse racing. 88 million versus 30 million. Back after the break. This is the Neil Prenderville Show. Text and WhatsApp 086-8104-106. Gork's Red FM. Yes, indeedy, to the phone lines. Maeve, good morning. Hi, good morning, Neil. How are you? I'm well. And did you also climb Patrick's Hill? Well, I actually did. Ironically, I did my own walk uh, in memory of my brother, Tony Swan, on Saturday morning in the Ballyhara Mountains uh, by where I live outside of Mallow. And then my son had rugby on Saturday afternoon in Lansdowne up the top of Patrick's Hill. So we also climbed Patrick's Hill in the afternoon. Um, so we did two walks, yeah. Well done. And tell me about your brother. So Tony, Tony Swan, he was an amazing, amazing person. He's from the lock in Cork. Uh, I know you, you, I think before you, you found it funny on the radio before, I think when you have the name Swan and you live in the lock area. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I remember that. I yeah, that. yeah. Um, I think it was on the radio before, but yeah, Tony was um, 37 when he was diagnosed with motor neuron disease back in uh, 2016. 37. Yeah. Oh yeah, my correct. God, that's so young. Yeah, I suppose he first presented with symptoms in kind of 2015, late 2015. Neil, um, like Marie's husband, now he had foot drop, so he began to trip and fall. And it was then in June 2016, he got his diagnosis. And we also prayed that it would be motor or could be MS or Parkinson's because we knew we'd have more time. But um, unfortunately, it was MND and he lost his battle on the 12th of March 2019. I know, it's so tragic at any age, but at 37 with a whole life to live for uh, and passing at 41. Yeah, it was it was horrendous and look I mean I suppose he started with limb onset which is you know in, in the limbs yeah because so you have it's a condition it affects you know more than I will about this clearly but the brain and the nerves and the messages to the body parts and the muscles break down isn't it yeah the messages from the neurons they, they don't transmit to the muscles anymore so I suppose for some people they get limb onset it starts in the legs or the hands and other people get bulbar like Charlie Burge um, who I have to commend, first of all, like because I, it's just been so emotional, as Marie said, to watch this man in the middle of this nightmare of a beast of a disease, yeah. because it is a of a disease. Yeah. And to use this public platform to help others, it's, it's just, it would blow you away because it's so emotional, because the Emotion Around Disease Association is the only lifeline for people with this condition. And I think it's only when you walk the journey with someone that you see how quickly, you know, this disease changes, how, you know, they can be at a kind of a condition for a short spell and 
they need equipment and mm. their adaptation needs change so much and without the Motor Neuron Disease Association there is no quality of life for these people. And, and, and people present differently do they in the sense that what I'm noticing about Charlie is that it, it seems to be affecting and impacting his speech doesn't it? Yeah, well, like, for Tony, it would have been impacted his speech towards the end, Neil. I suppose if it starts in your limbs, in your hands, in your legs, you will lose the use of your hands and legs. But if you get bulbar, it starts in the respiratory system, in the diaphragm muscles, so you lose your speech very quickly. And sometimes when you get bulbar, uh, unfortunately, and I, I hate saying this because I know there's people out there today, I'm mindful that people have the condition, they might not actually even lose the loose of their limbs because they'll they'll die before that actually happens. So for Tony, I suppose, for the last 12 months before Tony died, Tony had no use of anything in his body except his eyes. And tell... Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and, and, his, bra- and his brain, of course. His brain was absolutely perfect and all he had was... All he could do was blink his eyes. And talk to me about how he... How did he, how did he react to the, the diagnosis? And you know, how did he come to... Did he ever come to terms with it? Well, I suppose, like, initially he had a very good idea himself, I suppose, as the months went on when he started getting symptoms. He was going back and forth to the GP and they thought there was nothing wrong with him, but he knew there was something wrong. I I think when he was diagnosed, like, his strength and courage, like, was just phenomenal, Neil. I don't know, did he come... I, I suppose initially he was actually afraid to die and as the years progressed, he was afraid to live with the condition that... Oh, the, I understand, was, yeah. Was I understand what you mean, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I mean, you're a young man, you've your whole life, you're, you're trapped, basically, he was trapped inside his own body, because he couldn't move, like, I mean, if you imagine, Tony, Tony used to say, when he could speak, he said to me one day, he said, Maeve, if you sit in a seat, you put your feet in the ground, and you pretend that your feet are cemented to the ground, put your hands under your bottom so you can't move your body, so you're in that position all day, and then your brain is so active, you want to speak, you want to say loads of things, you open your mouth and there's nothing comes out of your mouth. And that is the condition then that he was living in. And how did he try and motivate himself in a condition like that with, with, without any movement? He was amazing, Neil, because Tony started to practice a lot in kind of, I suppose, mindfulness and meditation. Yeah. You know, to, I suppose, calm, calm the brain and then you kind of calm your body. So he, like... Um, I suppose it was only in the November before Tony died that he was lucky enough to get the eye gaze, you know, the um, communication aid where he could actually use the muscles of his eyes with the iPad and you have the sound to come out. Fascinating. So once, once, yeah, it was amazing. No, Fascinating. I'm so proud of him that I, you could sit and he could speak to you with the muscles in his eyes. Wow. How? I mean, phenomenal. how does that even work? Well, I, I tell you now why I suppose, like one reason why... I had rang in first, I suppose, was like for people to appreciate what the Irish Motor Neuron Disease Association do, Neil, by providing these aids. Because for the first year, we had to use what's called an the board, which is a sheet of paper, a sheet of paper with four lines of letters. And basically, you pointed at a letter and Tony would blink his eyes. Now, that was for every word. So every word would be you'd point to a letter and he would say he'd blink once for yes or twice yes. for no until yes. you eventually just kind of figured out the word. Yes, that's what we had to do for the first few months because resources weren't available with the Irish Motor Neuron to get the communication aid as quickly as he needed. But when he eventually got it then, it was just, it was it was so life-changing for him. He could go on Facebook, he could email his friends, 
he, you know, he could do so many things that he couldn't do. So even if people could realize, like, I think each, like, for Charlie Bird at the moment, it's amazing because they were lucky because they had footage, they had recordings of Charlie's voice. Not everybody is that lucky. Ah, so, so when I hear him now with the aid of a voice app speaking through the yeah. voice app perfectly, they're use and it's his voice. They're using yeah. old recordings of Charlie um, and they're incorporating that into the app. Yes, like and Charlie was lucky that he had that. Now, some people can get use voice banking and if you know soon enough you have the condition, you can bank your voice. You wow. Can you see, if you don't have that time, Neil, if it's if, like, even for Marie's husband that was on earlier, if it's very progressive really quickly, you're not going to have the time to do that. So you can use... Um, another voice you can make the words and another voice will come out but even to, like to have that voice because to lose movement in your body is one thing but to be a person in a room and your brain has so much to say but you can't you open your mouth no sound comes out you can't communicate with anyone it's the worst thing ever so you so, had communication back with your brother again then at that stage yeah he could communicate with us again which is amazing yeah for he would have got the eye gaze in November now again he would have needed it months before but the resources weren't available so Tony had it from November till March until he passed but he could have done with it months beforehand but you know the resources weren't there but like it's just if people listening today could understand we never know who's going to get this disease and when you get it you're given a life sentence but and you know what I can't get beyond that and all the conversations that I have with people about about terminal diagnosis and your brother where he would get the the strength or the bravery to to not always live in absolute fear or rage or disappointment or why me where do they where do they get this strength from but I, I think they do, they do have, he did have that time, Neil, he did obviously have the why me, and he had, you know, he had his cries, I mean, we all, look, we didn't even have cries, we probably screamed when we found out, we couldn't believe it, but as time goes on, like, you're, the person is still there, Tony was still alive, he still had so much life to live, because it wasn't his time to go yet, and I suppose, you know, he was a young man, and every single moment was precious, and he would have given anything you know, he was like, you know, he was a lover. He he, he just would have given anything if had more time. But I... I sorry, he was a lover I, of what? It's not a great phone about it? He was a lover of life. Life, so that's, okay. That's what he said. He was a lover of life. He um, he just would have given anything to have had more time in life, you know. And I suppose these people, I don't know, they just get this amazing strength. I don't think I would have had the strength. But he led the way for all of us. You know, he led the way for each and every one of us to help him and, you know, for no one to break down, for everyone to be strong and to have hope and to fight, to fight that disease to the end. And that's what he did. And did he, he made peace then? He did. He did, I think, towards the end, most definitely. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it was a battle. This, this um, disease was, had taken over his body. He began to separate, you know, himself then from the disease, that this is what the disease had did to him. And he did have exceptions, I think, most definitely, yeah. And yet, and yet, so little help when it comes to things like voice apps, communication aids, and as you called it, the eye gaze. Wouldn't you think yeah. the state would be providing that to people to help? They've got enough going on with the diagnosis as it is. Yeah, it's horrendous, Neil. I, I read um, something recently where I think it was last year, um, 
the Irish Motor Neuron Disease paid out about 480000 on these uh, communication aids. And I think they were only refunded something like it was twenty eight or 38000 from the HSE. So all of the It's shocking to hear stories shocking. like that. And then you shocking. hear at the same time 80 million for horse racing and ni- yeah. 19 million for greyhounds. Yeah. And Taxpayers' money. If you're given a terminal diagnosis, you have to flip the coin very quickly and say, let's focus on quality of life. Let's get what we can. That's we, like we fundraised for Tony. We bought things ourselves. You know, you had to have what he needed at the next stage when the body changed. You had to have, you know, like we, Tony was being given a brace to the HSC, an AFO. It would be a brace, you know, for the back of your leg. But, you know, he found this amazing brace in Canada. So we got the brace and it gave him way more quality of time being able to walk. So, you know, you have to go out yourself, you have to research, you have to find what's available to make life easier for the person so they can enjoy every stage they're at. Mm -hmm. Let us remember uh, the great Tony Swan then, who uh, passed away way, way too soon. Um, Yeah, And of course, did you think of him this weekend gone? Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, we think of him of every moment. No, I know, but especially because of the coming togetherness of the entire country through Charlie. We did, because, I mean, his anniversary was on the 12th of March, so it was only three years. So that was recent. But, oh, definitely, it was very emotional. Like, I watched Charlie. I followed it constantly. You know, we we gave our own donation, and I was watching it. I was saying, get to the one million. Oh, my God, I was saying, that's fantastic, get to the two million. And then, yeah, it was so emotional to watch Charlie, because... My heart is broken for Charlie because he has put him himself to the forefront. It's not easy to come out with this disease. No, it's and not. It's knowing that it's terminal, of course, and that no, that going to no. be front and centre in his mind all the time. Exactly. So it was very emotional. And uh, emotional. did did many did many climb Patrick's Hill at the weekend? I don't think so. No, I think we were just happening to be going up there ourselves. But I know, like where we're living, by the Valley Horror Mountains, there was a lot of sketches. Oh, I know the mountains and the valleys yeah. and the hills and what have you. But I just think there's something very lovely, very cork about Patrick's Hill being used. You know? Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, to be honest, now I'm I'm out in the lock here, and I want to start coming up from Mallow. So I'm going to walk around the lock now once or twice because he loves the lock, and so that's where he loves to walk. So I'm just going to do a little walk myself there now once or twice around the lock. And yeah, just finish off an amazing weekend for the money that has been raised. And I I would say, Neil, if there's people out there listening today who haven't, you know, given a donation, even if it's five euro or ten euro, you just don't know when this could knock on your door. And again, it's it's fundraising makes all of the difference. I I don't mean to be constantly blowing the same trumpet like, but it's unfortunate that all of these things have to have to come about from voluntary contributions, you know. Most definitely, yeah. Off you go around the lock a couple of laps for your brother. It's, it's been fascinating <laughs> chatting with you. Thank you so much, Maeve. Thanks very much, Neil. Thank All you the best. Much. Bye. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. I mentioned the front of the Echo this morning where they talked to, uh, and honestly, a Cork paramedic who said morale amongst his colleagues is at an all-time low and that several had left the service since the start of the year. He quoted that... Um, more than a dozen colleagues had left the ambulance service this year due to low morale. Um, interesting text, actually, from a listener to this program. It says, I just heard about the ambulance service on your program this morning. After over four hours, myself and my family waited last night for an ambulance for my dad. 
He was in severe pain following surgery a few weeks back. In the end, the ambulance actually came from Limerick. Limerick to Toker. It's an absolute disgrace. We live in Toker. He could have walked quicker, but we didn't want to drive him over as he would be sitting in an A&E chair. Uh, this way, at least, he got a trolley. The paramedics did arrive. They couldn't apologize enough. We could see that the paramedics were very stressed. They were in an awful, awful state. Keep my details anonymous. Thank you. Uh, and with that in mind, um, Maureen, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are so you? So in this case, an ambulance came from Limerick to Toker. Um, that was one specific trick trip. They drove from Limerick to Toker. Um, tell me about your own situation. Well, a family member got a heart attack on Tuesday night and no ambulance. Clearly somebody rang 999 or 112 or whatever. Absolutely no ambulance. They were up the walls. We had to ring the guardie to take him to the hospital. But would they have said it it will be X amount of time? Um, You know, they they couldn't give a time. They just said they were up the walls. Okay. So when was this exactly? Tuesday night? Tuesday night. What time? Uh, About... Um, maybe about nine o'clock Tuesday night. Okay, and it was clearly it was clearly a heart attack, was it? Absolutely, he was taken in. He had a stent put in. He had a blockage. Okay, and He's you would have told dead. them on the phone that it's a suspected heart attack. Well, it was my daughter rang. Okay, and you did know, they use did did they actually say the words "We have no ambulance. We're up to walls." They all they said was we hadn't they had no idea when they'd be there because they were up the walls. And what did they tell you to do? Um well I wasn't speaking to them. What it did they tell daughter. your daughter to do? Well, what we done ourselves because I had a heart attack a few years back. So I always have a box of aspirin. And I tell my children just for fear, have a box of aspirin in the house. So I know when I got mine that's what I was told a few years back, take four aspirin, chew them, do not swallow them whole, chew them, and that'll thin your blood and give you time to get to the hospital. So luckily, the family member had a box of aspirins, and that's what he was but told. But there, no, there was no advice given, or nobody talked through anything on the phone from 999 as to what to do with the heart attack patient, no? That's they, they were just, we have no clue... Um, Give them aspirin if you've aspirin, something to that effect. But they had no clue what time they would be there at because they were up the walls. We are 50 miles away from this person. So we were in total panic. Okay, so what did she do next? Uh, Rang the guards. Did they arrive with the patrol car? uh, Absolutely. Absolutely, and picked him up and took him into the CUH. And the following morning, that person had a blockage. Now, this person is receiving chemo and radiotherapy. Already? For battling cancer already? This person is battling cancer. So, into the back of the squad car. and And into the CUH. And into the CUH. Absolutely. Aren't you lucky there was the squad car available? Absolutely. It's a disgrace. A disgrace, Neil, what's happening in this country. And was he lying along the back seat? Um, that now I'm not sure of, but he had a stint put in. A fair play to the guardie, yeah? 
Absolutely. I actually rang the barracks in question and I thanked them. Well, fair play to them. Fair juice to them. I reckon only for them we could be a different story today, Neil. Well, the best you got was we don't know when we'll arrive. We're up the walls. We're up the walls. We're up the walls. They're under pressure. Shame on the HSE. They are not fit for purpose. And Paul Reid, that little weasel, and he's a weasel, and he's on nearly a half a million a year for doing what? You heard in the echo this morning they're saying that on Lee side over a dozen have left because of low morale. Absolutely, I don't blame them. And that low morale probably means too much stress in the job, yeah. too much yeah. anxiety, um, yeah. feeling as if they're letting people down, don't mm-hmm. want to do this job anymore because this is not what I signed up for, this chaos. Chaos is right. And they're saying, I'm going yeah. to get another job somewhere, I can't do this anymore. Can you blame can't them? Do this. I mean, people's mental health is a breaking point from what's going on in this country. Breaking point. And you heard a text there of the, the, of the, the family who's living in the lock and the ambulance came from Limerick. Limerick. Four hours it took. Four hours, was it? They, they waited for that yeah, ambulance. Yeah, for that man. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, Neil, if my family member... If that's only for the Gardaí last Tuesday night, this person would not be alive today. Thankfully, the guards came, got him there ASAP, and he's being looked after now. And tell me about your your, your own situation. Are you saying that you have to make decisions in your life now, whether you buy coal or buy medication for your own health issues, is it? My own health, because I suffered a heart attack some years back, Neil. I'm on medication 24-7, 24-7, 365 days a year. Yeah. I now have to pay for my medication. I'm on a, a widow's contributory pension. And I was told I was over the threshold wishes. So I wasn't entitled to a medical card. But they'd give me a doctor's visit card. That's it. But so that's only a couple of hundred euros, isn't it? Well, they're, they're, it's uh, 264 euros a week, Neil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? So you, so out of that money, you have to pay for your own medicine. You can't. As, are you? You're an OAP, though, aren't you? Absolutely. Okay, and they means test your pension. Um, yep. Even though you've paid tax all your life, absolutely. Uh, you can't get a medical card, nope. and now and now are struggling just to put food on the table or heat in their ads. Absolutely. How does it's that make you na- feel, though? Anger. The anger I feel. The anger I feel. It's. Oh, it just... And I don't want to get too stressed, Neil, no, with don't. my heart condition. I know, I know. But it just angers me so, so much. Because we are, we are, in our country, we are second-class citizens and have no doubt about it. And is your medication expensive on a weekly and monthly basis? It's a monthly, I guess. It's about uh, 70, 75 euro. But that's a lot of money every month. It's nearly a thousand euro a year. Well, there you go. That's a lot of money. Absolutely, Neil. But what do I do? Where do I go? You're over the threshold. And I'd say not by much, whatever threshold they've put in place. Well, I mean, you know, I think they make this up as they go along. I think it's very disrespectful, to be quite honest. Yes, crazy. uh, I worked for the HSE when I was in good health. I worked for them as a home help for nine years. You've seen it all then. 
I've seen it all, Neil. I could write a book. Yeah. I could actually write an encyclopedia. Yeah. Not yeah. a bother. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. It's a disgrace the way they're treating the Irish people. Absolutely shocking. We're second-class citizens. Yeah. Was it was never this bad in your life, was it? No, absolutely not. I've never seen it as an absolute disgrace between COVID now and the Ukraine war. Well, if I came in from Ukraine, I would get a medical card, wouldn't I? You would. No bother. You would. No bother. You would. No problem. You would. I get a nice hotel, my food, my welfare, everything. Irish citizen that have worked and paid taxes does in that this con- country. So d- does that concern yeah. you that you're the invisible? You're the invisible well, in our society. I'm. I'm just that the, the government. They have a lot to answer for. They've got blood on their hands. Them crew in the doll. They're a disgrace. And they have the audacity and the neck to walk around the street. Who but me and they're the guardie protecting them. Oh, my Jesus. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> There's no one there for us. We've no one to fight for us, Neil. No one. Okay, okay. I encourage people to get in touch just like you did, Maureen. Look after yourself, will you? I will indeed, Neil, and thank you very much. And thank you so much. Passionate words. I do appreciate them. Text 0868104106. Pick up the phone 0818104106. We're back after 11. Hey, it's Dave. Join me weekdays from 4 for Dave Max Drive, where I'll help get you home or give you a little lift at home. Big hits, loads of fun features, and traffic info. What more could you need? Join me weekdays from 4. Dave Max Drive. 104 to 106 Red FM This is the Neil Show. Okay, I'll come back to calls in, in a few minutes time but uh, let me just mention one or two things now we have uh, tickets to give away for Riverdance between now and midday Live with the Marquee on Friday, June the 3rd so three different songs they all have a connection an aquatic connection uh, as in water as in rivers as in river dance so artists and titles you need to identify them in the correct order artists and titles when i open the phone lines run about 10 minutes to midday here are the songs i only asked you to show me Okay, you're going to hear those three songs again sometime between now and 10 minutes to midday. Get on the phone, call it 10 wins on 0818104106 and we'll come back to it a little later on. Tickets for Riverdance, Live with the Marquee on Friday the 3rd of June. And you know what? It won't be long coming around. I was talking about um, the march for the walk for Charlie, the climb for Charlie at the weekend. And in different conversations this morning, talking to people whose loved ones passed away from motor neuron disease. In one of the conversations, they were talking about some of the technology uh, that is actually available now for people who have motor neuron and have issues with regards to their speech. And, you know, some of it has to do with a a voice app that can be used. Um, Some of the other technology uh, has to do with, um, you know, computerized systems that can be bought or given by the Motor Neuron Association uh, of Ireland. But one of the ones that um, I was talking about was this voice banking technology. So it, it, there would be an awful lot, of course, of uh, video footage and, and voice recordings of Charlie Bird. So apparently what they've done is, you know, with four decades of his voice, um, they uh, started to sift through recordings of Charlie Bird's voice, apparently himself and his wife, Claire, last year. And they narrowed down maybe three hours of very clear crisp audio of Charlie's voice and then that was voice banked and they can use the technology now because his speech has very much deteriorated but because they had all of these hours of his speech and other people can do it as well if they can get the voice banking technology for their loved one and a lot of the fundraising has to do with that so you 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 know you may have heard 
uh, Charlie Bird's voice uh, some some weeks back, which had very much um, you know um, diminished his his ability to speech. But this to speak. But this was this is Charlie Bird this morning then uh, using this voice banking like life changing technology, uh, thanking people uh, with regards to the uh, walk and the climb for Charlie at the weekend. It was a day to remember. Yes, we are about to pass the two million euros, but yesterday was not about raising money. It was about extending the hand of friendship. I am sorry in a way I cried so much yesterday, but honestly they were tears of joy. Claire Tiger and myself, we love you all so much. It's amazing technology. Charlie will be able to carry on talking like that as normal, even when he can no longer speak at all. It's really cutting edge technology. And, you know, the two million and if it continues to rise, will hopefully go towards providing that kind of technology to other loved ones. Even where there isn't any audio recordings of a loved one going through motor neuron disease, it won't stop the ability to be able to communicate. And uh, and it's far from just, say, blinking of eyes. Uh, a lot of texts to 0868104106. My dad was brought to the Mercy last week by ambulance and was left out five days later. He rapidly got worse, so we had to bring him back in on the Thursday. He begged us not to bring us back into the hospital because of the way a particular nurse treated him. But now he's still in hospital and we're not sure what's going on inside there. I'm afraid the same thing is going to happen to him that that poor girl you have on the air is talking about. Why was he let out just to get worse? And of course, with COVID restrictions changing everything now, it adds more worry now for loved ones, never mind the patient themselves who feels abandoned. Listening to that lady on the radio now speaking about the lack of care her dad is receiving in hospital, you can be damn sure prisoners are getting better treatment. We should be hanging our heads in shame that our health system has been left to get so bad. Uh, Well, it's because politicians are in denial, really. My relative was admitted to hospital with only the clothes they wore. No wallet, no phone, and they're bedbound. If you try to drop anything off, reception won't take anything from you and tell you to use the phone in the hospital to ring the ward and wait for someone to come down. However, it's nearly impossible to get through to the ward. And if you do, they'll say they'll try and send a porter down. But everyone's so busy, there are never any guarantees. If you ask reception, if they can send a porter, they say they prioritize moving patients, so they won't ring them. I understand all this, but surely receptionists should be able to take items and hold them to get them delivered to our loved ones, maybe in one lot during the day. It's so upsetting, says Amy. And that relative went in only with the clothes on their back. Tell their family to take their father out of the place. Go to the bonds. Uh, I had 14 stents done in a prominent hospital over two and a half year period, got a second opinion and I had bypass surgery seven days later. Neil, the HSE needs to stop restricting hospital visits. My father, who's almost 87, has been in hospital since December 28th. And for the most part, we can't visit due to COVID. It's torture for him and torture for us. Remember that now since the 28th day of December. Text 0868104106. Pick up the phone on 0818104106. And I'll come back to those stories throughout the course of the morning. But I want to chat to Annette. Annette, good morning. Good morning. Now, you have taken an amazing lady and her lovely son into your home from Ukraine. How is it working out for you? Absolutely amazing. We, um, they arrived 
into Dublin on Friday morning and my husband collected them off the airport. Did you sign up with the Red Cross to do that, yeah? So I signed up about a month ago, but um, I had heard nothing. So then I was, I came across these Facebook groups about help Ukrainians in Ireland. So I joined a few of them and I just put my details up and this lady got in contact with me. So we have been like messaging for the last number of weeks. Um, so she's from Kiev and like she sent me proof of her um, proof, like, you know, of her nationality and yeah, stuff. She's yeah. a little nine-year-old little boy. Um, and your husband picked them up at Dublin Airport? Friday, was it? No, in Cork Airport. Okay. Sorry, no, sorry, no, no, no. They flew into Dublin Airport on Friday morning and they were met above at the hub and they got their, um, they got some food and they got a little bit of money and then they got the air coach down to Cork and actually even the air coach was free for them. That was very kind of the air coach. And then um, my husband collected them off at St. Patrick's Quay. And had you a bedroom? Had you a bedroom put aside for them and everything? Talk to me about all that. So we have a four-bed house and my husband had a little gym. So the gym now is after being deconstructed, so it's now a bedroom. (laughs) Um, She has her own um, double bedroom with herself and her little boy. They have their own their own space. They're they're sharing um, family bathroom. Um, she can't do enough for me. I can't do enough for her. Yeah. Her English is absolutely amazing. We have two little boys ourselves, and just they're so in awe of this lady and her little boy. Um, Did they bring much with them, or was clearly it wasn't just very, the clothes very, on their very, back, but very, very little. I'd very say. very little. Yeah, it's awful. Um, but I must say, though, I have reached out to. Um, our own park where we live and our neighbours have been absolutely outstanding. My husband put up a few tweets as well and so people from all around the place have been dropping bits off. It's phenomenal. And, do they, and they, they eat with you? Do you cook for them? Do they cook for themselves? How's that working out? So we cook together. Irina likes to cook. I like to cook. Um, so they'll eat anything for us and like she's introducing new foods to me. And I'm introducing new foods to her, so we had plenty of potatoes now all weekend. It was lovely. <laughs> <laughs> we had to show her the traditional Irish, but she wants to cook now the borscht. It's this Ukrainian dish. Was that kind of a? Is that a kind of a pickled cabbage or what? No, uh, it's it's vegetable soup. Oh, is that what it is? All right. Yeah. So well, let her um, off with that and see what it tastes like. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, we're just trying to tell her that, like, you know, our home now is her home and stuff. And Is she very, um, are they very relieved, very grateful, but at the same time sad to be out of their own home country? Oh, do you know, she said she woke up one morning and she heard the banging outside. She didn't know what was going on. And that said her life has changed so much in the last month. Um, but she's trying to be strong for her little boy. I know, I know, I know. But you know, it's like what she has been telling me is absolutely heartbreaking. And like, literally, all we're doing is offering her the room. We um, And like, just the difference now in the last three days I've seen in her. She has been through so much, but we're coming out finally now, you know, we're exploring the area and I just... And is her son going to start school now, the little nine-year-old or what? So um, my little boy is in um, 
uh, school and we're meeting the principal tomorrow morning um, with the hope of getting him to space, but we think it should be okay. Yeah, and um, I guess his English is pretty good too, the lad, is it? Um, it's good, it's good. Um, but like her English is fantastic. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Everybody learns in, English. Um, she worked in Ukraine as like an, an Italian and a French tutor. So she has many languages. So if she's here for like, a, who knows how long she's going to be here for. And well done to you for taking her in. And as you said, our home is your home. Who knows how long she'll be with you? How long is a piece of string? It's like Irina just, she kind of wants to get a job now and she wants to out of our hair but I'm like absolutely no 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 we have the space it's just um, her life has just been turned upside down and I just want to be able to she wants to get a job but I can tell you one thing they're absolutely roaring and screaming for hospitality don't know what the wages are maybe that's one of the reasons why they're roaring and screaming for hospitality but there's loads of work yeah do you know so at least that and there's a lot of positives though but like I would just say like um was gassed that I crossed and actually rang me though finally on Friday just as my husband was after leaving to collect them from the, the air coach so I told him we've already sorted it <laughs> well done well that's great now, now she needs I know that she you want to just give her a bit of a uh, I suppose a pep up isn't it with a with a, a pampering a pampering is the word well Joseph's hair salon and glasheen want to give her the full works Oh my God, that would be amazing. Doesn't surprise me because Joseph is one of the most generous people on the planet. So he wants to give her the full hairdo uh, because she's had a tough old trip over here, yeah? Oh, just the last month, she said, it's just been, her whole world has been rocked upside down, that of her and her little boy. Yeah, sure, I know. It's only, listen, it's only, it's, 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 would you say that every woman's hair is their crowning glory? Absolutely. What woman wouldn't like to get their hair and, you know, just a little treat for her? I know, I know. Well, listen, that's sorted anyway in advance of you asking. I know that was one of the, you know, parts of the story I was going to have with it this morning to see if we get somebody to do her hair. So that's sorted. So hopefully she'll enjoy that. Oh, my God. That's going to, I can't wait now to tell her that she's going to be made up. All right. Maybe I might have a chat with her in, later on in the week when she's well settled in. Um, yeah, sure, we can have a talk. I'll have a chat to her about it. All right, okay. Go share the news with her. Come back to me later in the week, okay? Okie dokies. And look, um, anyone has any questions about taking in a person or anything, I would just highly recommend it. Um, it's been nothing but joy for the last three days. Yeah, and I, I have a feeling that you and Irina will be friends for life now. We really, really will, like, yeah. Do you know, if I have now someone to cook with, I have, because, like, the house is normally full of boys, and now I finally have a female... <laughs> Alive and my back, so. Watch out. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right, stay on hold there. We'll sort that little job out at Joseph's hair salon for Irene, okay? Okie dokie. Thank you. All right, you. cheers have and ash. Okay, you too. Have a good week. Talk soon. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 0818-104-106. Red FM. Uh, I know from earlier on this morning we had talked to somebody on a pension who has been um, uh, means tested uh, where Maureen was telling about her own situation whereby she has to decide whether she buys her life-saving medication or buys coal to stay warm. You know, hearing of uh, Ukrainian refugees and, you know, the um, uh, assistance that have been given by the state and by the country and indeed by many Irish families 
uh, won't sit well with her because the pensioners in Ireland, many of them feel in the case where you've just been told no medical card, paddle your own canoe, sorry you're sick, pay for it yourself. Um, it just makes them very angry and understandably so. And I was also mentioning earlier on with regards to uh, the echo this morning saying that uh, at least a dozen paramedics have just left the ambulance service. I came across some research at the weekend that was working out and, and you, you know, this is both serious and funny at the same time, but they ranked the most stressful jobs and the least stressful jobs by all accounts. Um, and it was uh, uh, some research that reveals what jobs are the most stressful. Um, now, I'm not going to even dwell on how the London Medical Laboratory came up with the, the results of the research, but they say the most stressful jobs are, number one, welfare professionals. On that basis, that would be people dealing with social welfare, people dealing with housing, people dealing with health welfare. So welfare professionals. Second, customer services. Third, legal professionals. It's interesting. Fourth, teachers. Fifth, librarians. Stressful job, librarian? That's a good one, isn't it? I thought it would be a very peaceful job, very enjoyable job, just very quiet and organized. Followed by recruitment consultants. And followed then by GPs and health professionals. So they apparently are the most stressful uh, it's interesting that GPs and health professionals are seventh and librarians are fifth. I'll never get my head around that one. I mean, health professionals surely would include doctors, nurses and paramedics. Now, a paramedics jobs got to be very, very stressful, but it doesn't make it up into the top three. The least stressful jobs, the least stressful hairstylists, apparently the least stressful job of them all. I mean, that doesn't even make sense. I would have thought that it is a very stressful job, particularly on a Friday when you're open from, say, 8 to 8 or 9 to 9 and you've got a big, long list of clients coming in and you're on the clock and you're dealing with colour and you're dealing with people's hair. I would have thought it's a very stressful job, but they're saying it's the least stressful job. Followed by dental technicians. I've nothing to say about that. Followed by jewellers. Jewellers? Stressful job? Okay. Software designers. <laughs> Where's the stress in that? Like Landscapers, bloggers and HR managers. So the least stressful jobs in the world. Hairstylists, dental technicians, jewelers, software designers, landscapers, bloggers and HR managers. I can understand the landscapers. I say a lot of the time they, they spend just uh, standing back admiring their work kind of thing. That keeps the stress levels down. But there you have it nonetheless. I don't know whether you have thoughts on it. Have I missed any from the stressful or the least stressful? Uh, text 0868 104106. Uh, back to very serious matters. Um, line one should have John O'Brien. John, good morning. Good morning. Slight time delay on this one. Where Are you on the Polish-Ukraine border at the moment, John? I am, Neil, yes. I'm at the Polish border just placed on Medica. Okay, here's, the, here's a stupid question. Why are you there? We are bring, we bring food up to the border and we go into the Ukraine with food for the Ukrainians that are traveling up through the Ukraine before they come to the border. They are on buses and they are hungry. They are dehydrated. Some are sick. And we are giving out food in that area. Where did you gather all of the food? Do you buy it there? Did you bring money with you or, or what? We bought a 40-foot Arctic 
with supplies from Belmacord in Ladies Bridge and we also bought two van loads. My God, so and, and, and full of what? Is it medical equipment, medical aid, food, perishable goods, non-perishable, I mean? Everything that you have mentioned, Neil. Everything from from a, a child's sock to wheelchairs to water, medical food, all essential equipment we brought with us. The video footage and the photographs coming out of Ukraine at the moment with, um, you know, I, I think that the Russians are somewhat withdrawing, but it's like a scorched earth policy as they're leaving. They're shooting dead civilians on the streets. Are you aware of all of that, John? We are aware of it, Neil. Um, I have spoken to many people over the last number of days. Um, I spoke to a farmer only yesterday who have milking a herd of 120 cows. All his, most of his cows now are dead from dehydration, not being able to milk, as he have no electricity or nothing. Another farmer told me he can't plough his land or till his land. There's dead bodies in every field. Oh, my God. And they're also planting mines. No worries. Yeah, just planting yeah. mines, Neil, yes. Dead bodies in fields where people were just shot as they stood. Mother of Shot as they stood and as they fled. You know? What are you so, witnessing at the border then, John O'Brien, the Polish-Ukraine border? We're witnessing fierce emotional people crying, kids very upset, travel long journeys in poor health, a lot of them in poor health. Um, it's just imaginable. The people breaking up families. I spoke to a woman yesterday at the border with her daughter crying, I want to go to Ireland, I want to go to Ireland, when she saw my jersey with the Ireland on it, I said, look, through an interpreter, I said, I will try and get you to Ireland, I will try and get you to Ireland. I got, we got her across the border yesterday, we got her across the border, down to this centre in prison, which is five minutes down the road, where we take in about, between anything from 1,500 to 2,000 refugees daily. Um, I met with her last night. She said it was the first time, she's a 52-year-old woman, she said it was the first time that she had ever seen her husband shed tears when she was leaving. Okay, so this, many times partners and husbands go to the border with wives, partners and children and say their goodbyes. Yes, that's what's happening and that's what she said. He said goodbye to his daughter, his only daughter. She's 22 years of age and... The, the, his his wife is 53 and she said for the first time as long as they're married that she's um, crying. Okay, okay. And are there, yeah. you know, at that border crossing, every country, I'm told, or should have a, a table and representatives to process the refugees. Talk to me about that. This is just, that's, the border crossing is in Medica. This area centre is called the Tesco centre. It's an old Tesco shop. It's a massive Tesco centre and it's called Premish. This is where the refugees come from the border and this is their first area that they come into in Poland. They are processed when they come through the door. They are, docu- they are documented. They are asked to know which country they would like to go to. And every country along the corridor from France to Germany, Italy, Sweden, Norway, Belgium, UK, everybody is there. There is one absence is that there's no tricolour flying. There is no table. There is no representative from Ireland. There is no Red Cross there from Ireland. There is nobody to represent the people that want to travel to Ireland. But this and is an official first... refugee processing area. 
it is uh, it is up to each company uh, up to each country to do it themselves there is no official representative here from ireland and it was the first thing the di arrived here I miss the tricolour. I have travelled the world. I have been in these situations before. I know what's involved. I know what's needed for refugees. And this was the first thing that I missed. I made loads of inquiries. There was a number of Irish people here. And they said there is no Irish here to help anybody. And did you Nobody. do anything to try and fix that? Yes, I have been. And some of my colleagues that have been here before me have been trying it to no avail. Now, since then... I've been in contact with James O'Connor, our local TD in East Cork. Yeah. Um, back from last night that they're ha- um, meet, having a meeting with Simon Covey sometime today. Also with the Irish ambassador in Warsaw. So what? we're waiting for developments from that. But I heard that you got a printer, a laptop, a tricolour and a table. We did, Neil. I had some funding left over after getting my convoy here to the Ukraine. I got some funding from the people of East Cork and Ban McCord and Bridge area, and I decided this cannot continue, that I have people coming up, pulling my shirt, Ireland, 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 and I have no, I can't process them. So myself, Paul Moynihan, who's a very high-up guy in Musgraves, and a man from Dublin, Joe Smith, we got together yesterday, we said this has to be softed. So we, um, I decided we'd buy tables, we bought the tables, this morning at 8 o'clock we bought a printer, Joe got the laptop, we have processed five families so far, and we have paid for them out of our own pockets. Paid for and them out of your own pop- pockets to what? Get them from the Polish border to Ireland? Yes, we, we have them processed as I speak to you, some of the lads are still working it. We're getting on a train from here today to Poznan where they will get on a Ryanair flight and they will be in Dublin tomorrow evening. You're incredible, John O'Brien. That's yeah. absolutely and incredible. The, the problem, another issue that I have, I'm not a, I might be, be 100%, but I believe that Ryanair has planes going from Poznan and Krakow that are not full, and if we had somebody here that could communicate with them, we would be able to put refugees on those planes going back to Dublin, rather than I putting the hand in my pocket for 200 euros or 300 euros to get people out of here. I and if you it. see those people so happy, they're hugging us, thank you, thank you for your payment to get me to Ireland. It said to me, Seamus was telling me that yourself and the lads paid a thousand euro to get a family here alone, is that right? No, there's three families, sorry, three families, Neil. But, but it's Irish civilians like yourself and the two gentlemen that you mentioned who are doing this off your own back. Set up the laptop, yes. the table, the printer, the tricolour, the processing, booking the trains, booking the planes, everything. Yes, that's, that is true, Neil, that is true. The money that we have, we are the people on the ground. And that's why we're asking, and we're asking, where is the Red Cross? I'm not saying they're in Mariupol, in, in the Ukraine, doing the work, but there needs to be a Red Cross personnel here, somebody to help us to process these people, because we won't be here all the time. We are moving on. I am moving on at the end of the week. I have a family event at home. I have to go to. Now I will come back, but I have two other girls lined up to come out to take my place while I am where absent. Do, where and do, where are you is. staying while you're down there? Where do you sleep? Where do you eat? Well, you can eat in the centre, Neil. There is plenty of food here. There is no shortage of food. We walk up to um, we walk up to about ten o'clock at night. From eight o'clock, some morning seven o'clock, we help out with the food. I help out in the kitchen. We do the beds. 
we wash the floors. Not only us, all other countries are doing the same thing. And uh, we stay in a small little apartment down the road about 15 minutes. That's an incredible story, John O'Brien. It really is. But, but I, need, I need, need money. A guy, there's two guys came to me only 10 minutes ago while I was waiting for you. They're from Castletown Bear. They've brought out a van as well with food and they're doing the same thing. They're going into the Ukraine and they're paying, they got money raised in Castletown Bay. They're spending that. They're going into a warehouse here. They're buying the food and they're taking it across. A lady came to me yesterday. She said, here in the centre, she said, John, she said, we have no underwear for the kids to have come in. She said, we have no stockings. We have no underwear for older men, briefs stockings, other things like that, and for women. We went across downtown, we bought 800 euros worth of clothing. That's an amazing story. And te- well, can, can you tell me why Why do they wish to come to Ireland? They, you say that they come when they see the Irish flag, they make a beeline for you. Why do you think that is? I think, Neil, a lot of them, before they come to the border, they have research done about the facilities in Ireland, especially because a lot of them has no visa. All they have is a Ukraine passport. Yeah. And a lot of, some of the Ukraine passports, they show they're out of date, the older type, and there is kind of problems with them. We had some problems last night trying to process one. But are are, other, are other countries across Europe stricter with visa applications and getting through immigration, is it? Yes, and the UK is now, there's a desk inside mine, the UK, in fairness, very helpful, gave us pay, printing paper and so helpful, but it is a lot harder to get into the UK, so a lot of the refugees are kind of bypassing that table and going to other tables, you know, in Germany and, well, and I think it's an incredible thing, you got the printer, the laptop, the tricolour, the table, you're processing them yeah. yourselves off your own back, I think. And we, we, yeah, we raised the tricolour last night up alongside an Norwegian or someone I'm there. And, and tell me, you, you, you said to me earlier on, before I let you get back to you, you said to me you've been in situations like this before in other countries, is it? Yes, well, I, I'm, an ex, I'm an ex-member of the Defence Force that I've served in Somalia in horrendous conditions and Kosovo in horrendous conditions. I've been to Lebanon seven or eight times. I've, I've been in Israel, so I'm not new to this situation. And that's why I was so upset when I didn't see an Irish representation because in fairness every other country I was you'll always see the tricolour hanging that's an incredible story and I was so disappointed not to see it here that's an incredible story you're telling is there anything you need I mean is this an appeal for help from the the public I wonder at all are you okay well it's not I'm not personally looking for anything but we need finance to to move these people on there was a family here a Norwegian girl uh, actually uh, um from the radio station, when she saw my thing, she came to me, she said, we have a family here, John, she says, we're three weeks waiting to go to Ireland. And they would not leave the centre, they wanted to go to Ireland, and they, there was nobody here to move them. So I arranged for them to move, but when I came back yesterday morning, all of a sudden, they were gone from their accommodation. So I don't know what became of them. Who knows? You know, but we need, we need finance whether well, it's the government sends a representative there or who finances it, but there is finance needed to move people from here that want to go to Ireland. Now, they may not be two or three aeroplanes every day, every week. There may be only one busload a week or whatever it is. But at least but you're there be, to meet them, in fairness. It's a wonderful thing you're doing. We are here to meet them. Last night, we thought things were quiet at about half past nine, quarter to ten. The next thing, there was 300 came down from the border in buses. There was pandemonium. Coming in the door. It's amazing. It's trying amazing. to feed them. And another problem, Neil, another problem, and the main problem that I spotted when I came here was, another problem was, 
inside in the centre they had only two areas for charging their phones. As you can imagine, these people have been travelling for days and days. Their phones are dead. They have no contact with their people, their loved ones in the Ukraine. So I, I, I just analysed what was happening. I went down to a warehouse downtown. I got 10 leads, all the equipment for charging phones. So I have five phone stations set up. And there's at least, as I speak to you, there is 60 to 70 people at each one of them waiting to charge phones and laptops where they can make contact with their loved ones in the Ukraine. Simple things that we need somebody here to organize. I can't stay here all the time, but there are basic things. Yourself would cop them. You don't have to be a genius. It's the basic thing. And this is where the Irish money should be going to people on the ground. I'm not saying it shouldn't go to the right class, but it's not coming out on the ground where it's needed here. Okay, okay. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, is that possible? It is possible. It is possible here. And as I can say to you, every penny, we're using our own money, every penny that that we get... I have a guy here from Dublin as well. We process those people. If, if some people themselves, Neil, do have finance. No, I mean, Seamus, 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 Whelan vouches for you with me, so I have no problem yeah. with that yeah. wide ugly world. Yeah. Okay, but so can I, get, I mean, can I get details from you off air as to how people, if they want to help, can intervene and help or um, suggest, so suggest ways of helping? Okay, so I'll put you back on yeah. hold. I'd love to talk to you again later in the week, John. Is that all right? Thank you for your help. Thank Incredible you work man. you're Thank doing. You. I mean, I'm just blown away. Just uh, if you get a contact detail, I don't know whether it's his mobile or whether it's uh, maybe it might be a WhatsApp or whatever, and I can give it out on behalf of John O'Brien. Anyway, just staying with the phone lines. John, good morning. Morning, Neil. Is he an incredible guy? Yeah, he is actually, and uh, as a matter of fact, like, he's got his boots on the ground there now, and he's well clued in what's what to be done. Tell me... He didn't see, any, I- he didn't the- see any Irish representation, so he set it up himself. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, but tell me, where's all the money gone that went to the, uh, to the Red Cross? Ah, well, I mean, I'm assuming that they're using it in other areas, just not in uh, uh, yeah, in Primish, where he is, at the at the border passing, crossing. Yeah, yeah but you're, but you're, like, it is, it's obvious, like, you have to push people at every border crossing uh, coming true. out of Ukraine. True, true, true. And, 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 and this guy could sort out uh, in two days uh, what our government couldn't, uh, couldn't uh, arrange. And there seems to be a lot of demand with people wanting to go to Ireland as well, so the pressure is on. Yeah. Yes, because obviously they've 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 got uh, family members uh, and friends uh, in in Ireland, and the word has spread. Like you know, well, we also uh, don't ask too many questions. We're here just to help. You know, yeah. yeah. Well, the paperwork going into Britain is a, is a nightmare yeah. from what I've been watch- yeah. from what I've been watching. No, no, no. D- so look, you're questioning the d- efficacy of the Red Cross, then, if you like. Oh yeah, well I mean they're not working. Take the money back off of them and, and give it to people that are willing to 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 be there at every crossing. I mean that that guy worked it out. He got it. He got it in one. He knew what was wanted, and he knew that he had to do it personally because if he was waiting for the paperwork, the the the. the the O's to be dotted and the T's to be crossed that it would turn into another catastrophe. Okay, good point. Well made. This is the kind of, this is the kind of people that need to be supporters. Thanks for taking the call, and John, as always. Okay, Text 0868104106. I'm just ploughing ahead, actually, because I want to chat uh, with something else that I mentioned at the start of the programme, and that was the um, re- research and report that was done by 
uh, Elio Byrne at Tripe and Drasheen. Um I mean, I, I was I found it staggering when I was reading the article on Friday uh, with regards to um, how popular Airbnb has become in Cork, not just for people who are looking to rent Airbnb, but the landlords who are actually using it now, who possibly in the past would have been in the housing market and doing long-term lets. More on that after the break. The Neil Brenderville Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday. 0818-104-106. Okay, Elio Burns at Tripe and Trishine. Ellie, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are you doing? Tell me everything. Leave nothing out. <laughs> okay, well, so last week, uh, as you mentioned there before the ad break, uh, I did an investigation into Airbnb in Cork and the impact that it's having on the rental market. And so uh, using an analytics website called AirDNA, uh, I saw this a snapshot of, of last week. There were 1,548 properties being advertised on Airbnb and on a smaller competitor that's called Verbo uh, for Cork City and County. So 1,548 properties advertised in Cork City and County. At the same time, click over to to daft.ie, 62 rental properties, long-term rental properties. Yeah, so I, I did the same just to just to check that weren't you weren't losing your marbles. Um, <laughs> I, I I went through Airbnb for Cork City and County. There are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of pages of properties. Then I went mm. to Daft, and there are four pages of properties. Yeah, sixty-two. So I suppose I so I interviewed. You know, threshold threshold are the tenants' rights. Uh, organization in Ireland. So I interviewed Adele Conlon, who's the Cork Threshold Manager, and what we were talking about, and that's in the article, what we were talking about is that obviously not all of those properties now of the 1,548 are kind of would would be suitable for long-term... No, because some of them are rooms, rentals. but there are many apartments yeah. and houses there as well. Well, of that, so of that figure, 1,548... 70%. So there were 1089 entire homes. They could be they How many? I just want to make an order of that. How many? 1089 entire homes. So they're houses that 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 might be suitable for long-term Why? rental. Why have landlords have they were they always on Airbnb? Did they migrate away from long-term lets to short-term? What happened? Well, I mean, the other thing that's in my article is that the top earning house uh, in Cork City on Airbnb at the moment raked in 71,000 last year. This that's is a five bed in Turner's Cross, yeah. 71 so and a half more grand. Than double what that landlord could have made if they had just long term let it to a family. There's a tax implication in Airbnb, don't they? They've got to pay tax on that income, right? Up until last February, Airbnb made no effort, like the platform itself made no effort to ensure that that was happening. As of last February, Airbnb did announce that they're now sharing details of who their hosts are with the Irish Revenue Services. So up until now, people maybe haven't been, but the revenue will now come calling. Well, they can, you know, so the, I mean, whether or not revenue is efficient at enforcing its own stuff is a totally different issue, but uh, to all intents and purposes, revenue has access to the hosts that are on Airbnb now. So there's 1,089 
homes, actually, houses, houses, yeah. houses yeah. on Airbnb, and there's 62 on Daft available for long term. Should that yeah. explains why people can't find somewhere to rent? And I mean, I suppose, as you would have read in the article, there are some areas that aren't necessarily in the city. So like, uh, you know, uh, Kinsale, for example, like seaside towns, holiday places. And, you know, I mean, I, I know kind of circumstantially myself, there'd be families that come from Kinsale that can no longer afford to live near their own families in Kinsale. And then they end up way out in the sticks and having to travel and pay, like pay money for fuel and all that type of thing. So I spoke to Tim Lombard, Senator Tim Lombard, who's raised this issue about Airbnb specifically in Kinsale. And what he raised was this, it's not only private one-off landlords anymore, there are investors coming in. So he knows people in Kinsale that have eight houses or five houses. And what they do is they only let them for the summer. So it's also a vacancy issue because then for eight or nine months of the year, those properties could be empty. And is there more money to be made in renting them in the summer and leaving them closed for the other three seasons than a long-term 12-month rent? Yep, because he said that one of the, like he knows of investors who have, for example, set up a management company. So they'll pay the same cleaning lady to go around and do all the turnarounds and then it's not worth their while to keep paying those people in the winter you know, when, when things are slow and when the bookings aren't coming in. So literally, it's more profitable to leave them empty for several months of the year and then just let them out over the summer and in the high season. Because I noticed as well in Airbnb, for every let, whether it's a week or I don't know, what are the average lengths of letting times? But um, you also pay, as, as the person staying there, for the cleaning. So it's a real win-win for the Airbnb owner, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, I suppose you could argue that there might be more maintenance in it than there is for a regular landlord because you have to have very high standards and there's cleaning that has to happen, you know. I mean, that could even be start and end of a long weekend or whatever. So, like, I'm sure that if there were Airbnb hosts... I interviewed one Airbnb host for the article, but she'd be somebody who literally only does the... I think what the platform was designed for when it was set up, which is something that I'm sure most people don't have a problem with, which is that if you have if you're lucky enough to have a house with a spare room, that you can make yourself a little bit of extra money and, you know, be a nice host, show people around the city, you know, and that type of thing. That's yeah. kind of where Airbnb It's morphed started, into something you know. completely different now, though, hasn't it? Well, I mean, when investor-led stuff, absolutely. And you can see the footprint of that on Dublin, I think, more than Cork at the moment. But that trundling noise at the start of the weekend when, when you hear all the, all the, wheeled, the wheeled suitcases going down the roads and everyone booking into their Airbnbs has a big impact on, on the sense of community in a place as well. You know? um, of the 1,089 entire homes advertised uh, on Airbnb, how many of them would you th- think would have migrated over to Airbnb away from being landlords who had long-term tenants? Well, that's very difficult to say because, I mean, I suppose over time we've all noticed, haven't we? I mean, the past couple of years, we've people have been saying there's just no housing stock available in the rental market, you know? But, I mean, I suppose, I like, it's anyone's guess as to the individual decisions that have led to that. I mean, some people presumably just... Oh, I'll give this a try. And uh, like I mean, they're following the money, aren't they? And I suppose to some extent, who can blame them, maybe? 
Absolutely, from that point of view. But the other thing that I think is really important is that, I mean, for the past couple of years, the, the Irish government has been trying to come to grips with this because it's recognised now as a problem. And so there was a change in law in 2019, in summer of 2019, that means that if you are airbnb and if you are going to be short-term letting for more than 90 days in a year, you're supposed to be applying for change of use to local authorities. Do people so apply? <laughs> well, if you've read my article, what you'll see is that I also analysed that. So I went, emailed Cork City Council and Cork County Council. And what I discovered is that there have been 51 change of use planning applications under that law. But there are 1,548 active properties on yeah. Airbnb. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so really what you could see from that is that uh, self-regulation, asking people to sign up to something just doesn't work. Like, and everybody that I interviewed for that article um, said the same thing, especially with Al Conlon from Threshold. So, I mean, I suppose one very interesting factor there is that Airbnb itself is a huge multinational and they make a, a little bit of money from every single rental that happens. And a lot of people, like Tim Lombard was saying, sorry, Senator Tim Lombard was saying that in Scotland, they've brought in a new rule that Airbnb has to comply with, where if you, like, you have to show that you're, you're in legally operating to go on the platform. But in Ireland, you don't have to submit anything to Airbnb. They let you advertise on the platform, even though you might be operating outside of the Irish law. And and the tax implications are still very vague. It's a bit like the Wild West. It is. Well, I mean, I suppose there are a lot of good reasons. Airbnb is one of the tech companies that has based itself here in Ireland to take advantage of our corporate tax rate. Yeah, I know. But so there are know, maybe re- lobbying reasons why I looked on lobbying.ie and I couldn't see anything recent, but I'm wondering why we've taken such a lax approach so far. I think it's going to change. I think Fall to Ireland are going to be operating some kind of new registration for short-term lettings starting in 2020. And what is a what is a typical let in Airbnb? Is it a we- weekend, a week, or what? Well, I mean, and that's, that's very, very interesting, but uh, COVID, so COVID hit Airbnb as a company really, really hard. And one of the things that's been interesting is because of the trend towards working from home, a lot of people have cottoned on to the idea that they don't actually need to be working from home from the same country that they're registered to be employed in. Yes. And so the average length of Airbnb stays has lengthened significantly. And it, within the past year, uh, you had uh, Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, noting that now 17% of their lettings are longer than 28 days. So that's people deciding to base themselves in a, in a place for a longer period of time. That has massive, if that pattern continues, that has massive implications for our land use, for taxation, for how local authorities can can keep tabs on, on how things yeah, are working. Yeah, I mean, the biggest implication for me at all out of the article is people who are searching for somewhere to live themselves. They will feel very despondent when they hear those numbers, 1,089 short-term lets in Cork City and County, um, particularly when the housing list for social housing in the city is at 4,500 and that the county, it's at uh, close enough on 
two and a half thousand. Is it any wonder that people don't get callbacks from letting agents or don't get viewings? Go on to Daft and they find nothing. They're all gone to Airbnb, right? Yeah, it seems to be a significant trend. I mean, it's not the only factor. Of course, there are loads of other things. Um, you know, myself and Adele Conlon were talking about hack rates, you know, being being just not reasonably, just being too low now. But the problem is, is that Airbnb, you know, the, like the it all drives the price up because the rental, you know, like the private rental market, I mean, as we've seen, the prices are ludicrous now. I mean, you know, you're talking like 1,900 for like a three-bedroom house with not much going for it kind of thing. That's impacted by supply, like that's to do with supply as well. So scarcity drives the prices up. So it's having this knock-on impact. Again, and also it's yeah. having a knock-on impact on the on the price to buy houses, as, as uh, Senator Tim Lombard was pointing out, because you're competing against investors who want to get in on the short-term rental. I know, and onto Airbnb. So this house in Turner's Cross in Airbnb will turn seven and a, 71 and a half thousand a year uh, compared mm-hmm. to a daft.ie advert for a house in Blackrock that would bring in 38, 34,800 in a long-term rent per year. Look at the difference there, 71,000 versus 34,000. That kind of sums yeah. it up, doesn't it? So it's no wonder that landlords are doing it. I mean, okay. it's not surprising. Okay, okay, listen. But it is a bit shocking. It is. Full article in um, the uh, online at, uh, let me get this right, uh, com. Yeah, and you can find us on Twitter at Tidrasheen and Facebook and Instagram where Tripe and Rasheen is at. Okay, thanks for taking the call, Ellie, and thanks for the research. Do appreciate it. Tripeandrasheen.substack.com. Um, if you are in the uh, lookout for a rental property and have a story to share with regards to your frustration or your refusals uh, or just having absolutely no luck, I wonder how you feel about statistics like that, Airbnb, pages and pages and pages and pages, even when you strip away the ones uh, that would only be rooms or not suitable for a family or not a full building. There's still 1,089 of them that are actual homes on Airbnb. And if that's the way the world is migrating, I have no way of stopping any of that. I'm just here to let you know what's happening and maybe one of the reasons why you can't find somewhere to live. Love to hear from you. Text 0868104106. You can always email your story to neil at redfm.ie. I'd love to hear from you. Final bit of business this morning, as promised. Phone lines are open. I only asked you to show me what it is I've been looking for. Artists and titles, please, in the correct order. Call number 10 wins on 0818104106. A pair of tickets for Riverdance, live at the Marquee, Friday, June 3rd. Apologies, uh, what I didn't get to this morning, we'll pick up on tomorrow morning. Have a good day. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to this Red FM podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out redextra.ie for more great Red FM content.